Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Let me give you some numbers. See if you can guess at what they mean. 300. I'm going to give you four numbers, okay? So you don't have a lot to remember. 300. 391. 576,498. That's one number. 576,498. And 8,468,000. Those are your four numbers. You got them? 300. 391. 576,498 and 8,468,000. Got him? Okay. You know what the first number is? 300? That first number is the number of homicides in Baltimore for the year 2022. That's right. Congratulations, Baltimore. Congratulations, Charm City. You have now recorded your 300th homicide of the year. Took a lot of work to get here. Congratulations to everybody that made this possible. If you're a criminal in Baltimore, if you're a homicidal maniac that is on the streets because of prosecutors like Marilyn Mosby, who herself is under indictment, or because of uh, in, improper policing that's going on at the city, the municipal level, congratulations, you have managed to hit that 300 no, uh, homicide number. Now, I'm being somewhat flippant to call attention to what is a real problem. And uh, you just look at some of these murders. It's easy to look at statistics and say, oh, boy, that's bad. But if you look at some of the people involved in these murders, a father-to-be in Baltimore is among the latest homicide victims as Baltimore has now recorded over 300 murders for the eighth straight year. So what's the number 391? What is that? Very simple. That is the number of murders in New York City so far this year. Now, you might say, oh, well, New York City is probably a much more dangerous place than Baltimore is. That is where we come to our third number. 576,498. You know what that is? That is the population of Baltimore. 576,498. I think I have 576,000 people in my building. They're, they're, that's like the population of Staten Island. In a city... Of 576,000 people for the eighth straight year, there has now been 300 murders. I don't mean to laugh, but you laugh to keep from crying, quite frankly. How does that compare to New York City's population? New York City has a population of 8.4 million. New York has 
almost 8 million people more than Baltimore and essentially the same amount of murders. So I would love to ask you the question. If you're a Maryland resident or a New Yorker or anybody with an opinion on either of those cities and the crime tactics that are involved there, why? That's always the most important question that I ask anybody. Why? Why is Baltimore a city that has 576,498 people? Why are they essentially almost tied with New York City in terms of their murder rate when New York has 8 million more people? What is New York City doing right? What is Baltimore doing wrong? Or you can answer it as a combination, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I suspect, like many things, it's not one answer. It's not one factor. Because, look, I mentioned Marilyn Mosby, the progressive prosecutor in uh, Baltimore, and we have progressive prosecutors in New York. You know, you've got Alvin Bragg in Manhattan. You've got uh, Gonzalez, Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn, even Melinda Katz, who's doing their best to catch up with everybody else in Queens. You have progressive prosecutors all over New York City, and yet we have nowhere near the homicide rate as Baltimore. Some people may say it's gang violence. There's a lot of gangs in Baltimore. That's true. We also have a lot of gangs in New York. Some people may say it's drugs. There's a lot of uh, drugs in Baltimore. That's true. There's a lot of drugs in New York. So why? Why do you think the, the incredible market disparity, what do you attribute that to? And I don't have an answer. This is genuinely a serious question. Uh, John Deedy is a program coordinator for the political science department at the Community College of Baltimore County. And John Deedy spoke to Fox 45 Baltimore about this rather conspicuous milestone. When Mayor Scott ran in 2020, his number one goal was to get it under 300. And it doesn't appear there's light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe this will develop more of a sense of urgency now. I think there can be some hope because there's an expression, a new broom sweeps clean. You know, even criminals know there was an election and Marilyn Mosby isn't around, going to be around anymore. The jump from 2014 to 2015, a lot of people at the time said, that's an anomaly. That was the Freddie Gray riots and things are going to return to normal. And they never did. They never did. That Freddie Gray effect was real, by the way. Uh, Freddie Gray, uh, that's the incident where... The gentleman died and the police officers got charged and there was a feeling among police officers that they might get charged if something bad happens to somebody that they're in the process of arresting or taking into custody. And uh, they call that the Freddie Gray effect because they say it results in less aggressive policing. Heather McDonald wrote a whole book about that. But, uh, yeah, Marilyn Mosby is on the way out. So we will see if that means uh, it's just so interesting to me what John Deedee said there, though, that essentially criminals are watching election results and say, oh, okay, we can go out and commit more crimes now. I wonder if that's true, Um, if if there is some truth to that. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Mark Shaw joining me in about uh, eight minutes. Looking forward to that conversation very much. He is a former criminal defense attorney, a best-selling author. His new book is out today. It's called Fighting for Justice. We're going to follow up on some of the JFK segments that we did last week, but it's going to be going into a lot more than that because in our previous discussions, Mark Shaw has tied the um, the 
the deaths of Robert Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, Marilyn Monroe, and Dorothy Kilgallen. And his new book essentially is about how the push to chronicle those things over the last four or five years has impacted his life and some of the adventures that he's had as part of this and some of the whistleblowers that have reached out to him. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. But I'd like for you to answer the question. Baltimore has 300 murders. New York has 391. Baltimore has 576,498 people. New York has 8,468,000 people. Why why such a disparity? What's what's going on in Baltimore? 800-848-9222. A big shout-out, by the way, to our friends at WCBM. A lot of great hosts on WCBM. Sean Casey does a terrific job there. Kevin Battle, who I was on with on Sunday, does a terrific job. And I feel pretty good in saying that none of the hosts at WCBM are contributing to that murder rate in Baltimore. I, I'm on pretty good, pretty good standing on that one. Let me begin with Josh in Rockland County. Hello, Josh. Hi, how are you? Great show. Thank you. So I'm going to take a guess because I'm not the biggest expert, but I think that um, Manhattan, New York City, has a lot more rich people, business people, all kinds of groups of people. So Baltimore is probably a poorer city, less diverse. So what happens is there's more. Um, we had a Rudy Giuliani. Even Eric Adams wasn't the most leftist that we elected. So there is some more push for security in New York City versus Baltimore. Well, that's uh, that is interesting. Well, but when you have eight million more people, it's true. New York does have a lot more wealthy people. But there's also a lot more poor people in New York as well than there are in Baltimore. Uh, so, and it's an, and Josh, thank you for the call and thanks for your nice words about the show. It isn't that poverty causes crime, but and this is documented by people much smarter than me. More affluent people avoid conflict. Uh, so, in effect, they cede the field to the poor. And both the left and the right agree on that. That's not a controversial thing. So your premise, I think, is right. You're not going. You're you're not going to see somebody that makes seven figures shoving a stranger onto the tracks of the subway. You're not going to see that. But um, in a city that's this big of eight and a half million people, it's got to be more than that. What else do you think it is? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Russ in White Plains. Hello, Russ. Oh, hi, Frank. You know, I think New York City has a lot more anxiety-ridden, neurotic people than Baltimore, from what I've found out about both places. But I think you're wrong. It's not about the numbers. Bragg himself, the DA Alvin Bragg, and I voted for him, himself is, is displayed a lawlessness. You know, with this Jose Alba and now this Tracy McCarter story, I'm sure you're following it. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was let the jury decide, but apparently now Alvin Bragg decides if he made a campaign promise, he's going to let this person walk. And, you know, with Jose Alba, there were a lot of mistakes made with that. uh, Russ, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying. I I just don't think you're putting your finger on why the disparity in terms of murders versus population in Baltimore versus New York. Well, I think Baltimore has always had a hardcore you know, population, and I think you can't do when, numbers when you like say, this. When, when you say a hardcore population, what do you mean? Well, there's a gap.
ghetto down there that, you know, is in this, the center city. Now, I know they gentrified, but in New York, it's more related to people turning on each other. We were treated as disease vectors. The person next to you could kill you. And so goodbye to the 99% solidarity. That's what that was all about. All right. so everyone they I, treats everyone else like, a, a, you know, a potential killer. All right. I, I don't think you really answered the question, Russ, but I appreciate you trying. 800-848-9222. Someone who has an answer for everything, Steve in Manhattan. Let us have it, Steve. We've got to send Disco Duck down there. And I want to know how he voted for Bragg if he lives in White Plains. I guess that's how they always win these lefties. <laughs> um, first of all, Frank, I always come up with guests before I get to meat and potatoes. Ben Maller from Sports Radio Fox. Get this guy on as a guest. You'll love him. I'm looking to increase your ratings. Hey, Steve, I'm waiting to get you in studio, man. Yeah, I, want, I want to get you in studio. We'll do a one-on-one for an hour. I would love it. And now the, the, the audience will go nuts for me now. You have to clear everything out. That's right. That's the right. Weather, That's the news. right. I'm prepared to do you that. You need me for four hours. We'll touch every yeah, topic Yeah, come in. Come want, in. Let's do it. From Steve. the rascals to Kennedy and everything like that. But with Baltimore, first of all, let me set it up with this. A couple of years ago when one of the radical groups was going around and they were lecturing people with bullhorns, there was a woman she was pretty big with a bullhorn, and she had a lot of women for, and men from Baltimore out in the street in front of a library. And no matter what this woman said, they all agreed with her. They got on the floor. They got on their knees. They bantered. To me, it looked like a scene right out of Jonestown, Guyana, circa like October 1978 or November 78. That's what it looked like, the people in the mind so it's control cultural. of that. Are you saying it's cultural? It, it's no cult like, not cultural. Okay, cult-like. but so why but, do those cults, I, those cults, live in Baltimore and not New York? Well, there's cults all over the place. But the thing is, I want to make the point now. This is the key thing. Now, I live in New York City my whole life, so basically, I'm surrounded by leftists. There's a lot of people who are conservative, but they're so now numbered, they're meaningless when it comes to politics in the city. These people, I'm telling you, the people in New York City, the leftists, want people like. Carl Hasty as assembly guy, right. who, uh, you know, with the no bail laws. Same thing in Baltimore. They vote for people right. who so release why the criminals. The, why the disparity? Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Why the disparity? Alan Yonkers, I have Mark Shaw waiting in the wings uh, very quickly. What do you think? Yeah, Frank, you know, Baltimore is a very impoverished city. Many of the people on the uh, who live in Baltimore are on public assistance. Uh, this is nothing new. Uh, they've been the capital the city for some time uh, with the homicide title of the most homicides in the nation. Uh, They've been, you know, in competition with Detroit. Uh, You know, you could go to a city like Baltimore and uh, live, buy a house uh, for a cheap price, but there's always that violent, uh, you know, it's a violent city, just like Buffalo. You can go up to Buffalo. So Baltimore is violent and it'll always be violent. Yes. No matter Unless what. Hopefully they change it, but it, it doesn't see, you know, right. they've had this title for some time. So, it, but I mean, it really seemed to have gone up about eight years ago. There's nothing, yes. I mean, there's nothing they could do to make things go back to where they were prior to 2014? I guess, you know, I, I think they'd have to get politicians in there who are more, uh, you know, more uh, pro-law enforcement. Right. Okay, Al, but it seems like New York has elected a lot of the same people, and yet we're not having a lot of the same problems. Al, thank you for the call. Um, we're going to talk with Mark Shaw in a moment. Uh, he's got a brand new book out today, Fighting for Justice. We'll hear all about it straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents... This is Frank's Conspiracy Hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Last week was the 59th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And for nearly six decades, people have wondered what really happened. And in the 60s, one of the most prominent media personalities in America, in radio, on television, and in print, Dorothy Kilgallen, did a fair amount of investigating what really happened. Did she get too close to the truth? And did her investigations lead to her own demise? Well, we're just a couple of weeks away from another key deadline in the government having to reveal maybe, anyway, a whole bunch of key documents related to the Kennedy assassination. What's all this secrecy about? And could the murder of John F. Kennedy, the murder of Dorothy Kilgallen, and the murder of an icon like Marilyn Monroe all be linked? Well, Mark Shaw, who is a best-selling author and a former criminal defense attorney in his own right, has made a pretty compelling case in several books, The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, collateral damage and several others that Dorothy Kilgallen might have been on the right track. And over the last few years, his story, the story of investigating and exposing the cover-ups about the JFK assassination and the deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen is a fascinating one. And that is the story that is told in large part in Fighting for Justice. Mark, as always, it is great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Oh, thank you, Frank. I appreciate it very much. Mark, I think everybody knows John F. Kennedy died, and I think everybody knows that uh, Marilyn Monroe passed away. Let's talk about your investigation into what happened. Uh, John F. Kennedy is killed in 1963. Dorothy Kilgallen is killed in, or Dorothy Kilgallen dies in 1965. Marilyn Monroe uh, dies in 1962. That is the order that you investigated these three deaths, even though that's not chronological order. Why, even though Monroe died third, uh, excuse me, even though she died first, did you investigate her third? Well, you know, I've always done things in my life kind of ass backwards, Frank, so <laughs> this is no uh, surprise to a lot of uh, people. You know, this this has been an amazing journey. You know, the, the uh, subtitle in Fighting for Justice that's released today calls it an improbable journey. Uh, some people would call it an impossible journey or a lot of other terms because I never had any idea that I would ever get involved in, in the uh, deaths of these three individuals in those turbulent years there in the early 60s. And um, the way that I that I did this uh, is, is kind of – I think it's fascinating and, and, and inspiring to some people because I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I fell into it. Uh, I knew Melvin Belli, who was Jack Ruby's attorney. Uh, when uh, Jack Ruby uh, shot Lee Harvey Oswald. And in that book, I found out about Belli's involvement with the, the mob and stuff like that. And the second book had to do with the 60 election being fixed and Belli being, you know, part of the whole situation there and Joe Kennedy then double-crossing the mafia. And, and I put it in the book, that you, uh, the one book that, you know, the, the motive for killing a JFK was to make Bobby powerless so he'd leave those mobsters alone. And so that made a lot of sense to people. I was going to quit then 
But then I found the Ruby trial transcripts, and that was in the book, Denial of Justice. I was going to quit then. But people kept asking, is there a connection between the life and times and deaths of JFK, Marilyn, and Dorothy? And that was collateral damage. So I was going to quit again. Uh, but the reason that I that I did that is that I never thought there was any connection between the deaths of Marilyn and, and Dorothy. So I didn't think about uh, investigating it until I'd already looked into the JFK assassination and, and Dorothy's story. So that's, that was the reasoning, and it was amazing to me uh, when I found a, a photograph of, of Dorothy with Marilyn, and then I found a column she had wrote just before, written just before Marilyn died, supposedly of a suicide, and that launched me into those books. And then, as you're going to hear, a phone call that I got uh, in February changed everything about everything that I knew about all three of these uh, these icons in some ways. And that's uh, responsible now for for fighting for justice. So in this book, Fighting for Justice, the improbable journey uh, to exposing cover-ups about the JFK assassination and the deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen, like in the previous work that you've done on this subject, Mm -hmm. the Kennedys don't exactly come across as looking the best. And uh, they they actually might have played a pivotal role in Marilyn Monroe's death. Was Dorothy Kilgallen aware of that, in your view? Did her research suggest that? You know, uh, what, it, what, what is suggested there, it's a really good question, uh, Frank. I haven't been asked that much. Uh, the Kennedys are at, in the middle of all of this, and Dorothy's in the middle of all of this. They're the, the common denominator with everything that happened to all three of them. There's no question about that. I'm not very nice to the Kennedys, again, in the new book, uh, I found a, a book that was written in 1973 about the Kennedy men's neuroses and and found out that JFK was actually married before he ever married uh, uh, Jackie and some things about them, and especially about Joe Kennedy. Uh, there were some bad parts of the Kennedys. They certainly did some good things, but some bad parts. And, and Dorothy has, you know, been in the middle of all of that as well. But uh, as far as whether uh, Dorothy knew about the whole situation with the Kennedys and Marilyn and so on and so forth. You have to remember, uh, unlike today, uh, back then, uh, there was kind of a, um, I don't know what you would call it, uh, kind of a, a, a deal with a lot of the columnists and newspaper They wouldn't print the dirt. Yeah, they didn't get into that, especially with public figures, especially the presence of the United States. So, uh, you know, I've uncovered even more evidence that Dorothy was such a close friend of JFK's yes. Uh, he had been to her home for, for playing charades and parties and things, and she had taken her young son to the White House to meet him, and he made a big fuss over that. And so she was very close to him uh, when he died, uh, obviously, and she, she saw Jack Ruby shoot Larry Har- Lee Harvey Oswald. She knew something was wrong, and she started investigating his death. But uh, I, I've never been able to find anything she wrote uh with with any any mm-hmm. dirt to it about uh, about either John Kennedy or for that matter Robert Kennedy so the gist of Dorothy Kilgallen's thesis about the Kennedy assassination which mm-hmm. you've largely adopted and built upon is that the mob killed John F Kennedy and others have said this as well as retribution for uh, Robert F Kennedy's uh, lack of appreciation to put it mildly for their pivotal role in getting John F Kennedy elected in 1960 one theory Theory that keeps popping up from time to time is the Castro theory that uh, this was blowback for the frequent assassination attempts that the United States and the CIA had made on Fidel Castro. Tell me why you dismiss that. 
Well, because Dorothy did. You know, she's the only one at the Ruby trial in the front row listening to the testimony. She's the only one that interviews Jack Ruby. Uh, whatever he tells her, she goes to New Orleans where Carlos Marcello is. Uh, I heard you say the mob, so I'm very careful not to generalize that mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's no question in my mind using common sense. All you have to know is that J- uh, uh, Joe Kennedy fixed the 60 election uh, by by asking uh, through Frank Sinatra to have Marcello and Giancana and Traficante and all those guys help them win uh, uh, Illinois and West Virginia so they could win the election, and, and they do. And then Joe turns around and double-crosses them by uh, having JFK appoint to Bobby Attorney General, and Bobby Kennedy, first thing he does is go after Marcello. So if you follow that thread on through, you see that Marcello had the biggest uh, reason, the strongest motive to have killed to have orchestrated the, uh, the death of JFK, and you can take that on through then his empire in New Orleans, a billion-dollar empire, stretched on to Dallas. And there's little things that, that mean a lot, like w- with when Dorothy did her investigation. For instance, who was the first person to have visited Jack Ruby in jail? Well, it was a guy named Joe Campisi and his friend Savello. And uh, who did they work for? They worked for uh, Carlos Marcello. And I believe they told Ruby, listen, we're going to get you a big-time lawyer. And they got Belli, who came in and then did what he was supposed to do, which was shut uh, Jack Ruby's mouth, wouldn't let him testify, used this insanity defense and all that. And so they button up all the holes. Oswald is dead. Ruby's been convicted. And, you know, there's never going to be any other investigation. And, and that will now tail end into what I found out about the Warren Commission and the corruption there. Uh, through this uh, phone call in February from a whistleblower who was right there with one of the members uh, when they convened the uh, Warren Commission. Well, we definitely want people to read the book, and I don't want you to spoil too much of it, but uh, you have to share that with the audience. What did you learn about the Warren Commission? Well, you know, there was always one piece missing, and I hadn't thought about this till the other day. One piece missing in uh, why I was able to show that Dorothy Kilgallen, uh, they had to silence her in 1965. I knew that uh, those enemies, like Marcello or J. Edgar Hoover or whatever, uh, had reason to uh, be scared of Dorothy. She was writing a book for Random House, a tell-all book about the assassination and everything. And uh, I knew that they would be worried about her being at the the Ruby trial. She was able then to get uh, Jack Ruby's testimony before the Warren Commission, and that'll, uh, that'll connect in with the Warren Commission material as well. So she had all this information. She was putting in a book. I think she was going to expose Marcello and, and as, the, uh, as the one who orchestrated mm. the death of JFK, and Hoover is the one who covered it up. So they're scared to death of her. But here's what happened. Uh, in, in February, uh, a gentleman uh, sent me an email and said he had just watched a presentation of mine at a Dallas, uh, near Dallas airport, Allen Library, uh, near Dallas in the Allen Library in Allen, uh, Texas. And uh, he, he, he watched it, and, and there's, uh, I think, seven and a half million views of my presentations and interviews up there. He happened to pick that one that had gone viral. And he wrote me and said, Mr. Shaw, I, I'd like to talk to you because I knew Dorothy Kilgallen. And as you can imagine, Frank, uh, my ears perked up sure. because there aren't that many people around who remember her. So I immediately phone, uh, called uh, this gentleman named Morris Wolf, a very distinguished man, uh, Yale lawyer, uh, worked for Bobby Kennedy when he was in the uh, attorney general's office. Uh, the Kennedy brothers trusted him so much that they used him to um, exchange messages between the two Kennedy brothers in the Justice Department and the White House because they didn't 
they, they were worried that J. Edgar Hoover was tapping their phones. So I found him right away to be very credible, and then he told me that he knew Dorothy Kilgallen. But first he said, I have to tell you, Bobby Kennedy then recommended me to one of the Warren Commission members, and I became his legislative assistant. And I was right there, Mr. Shaw, when uh, he went to those hearings. I rode with him in his Saab, uh, small little Saab automobile. He was a big guy. He almost couldn't fit in. We went to those hearings, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I was able, in fact, to, to sit in on some of the hearings because, actually, um, you know, I had to wait on him and so on and so forth. And then he starts just telling me, I'm writing as fast as I can, Frank, as you can imagine, and he tells me, uh, that that uh, this uh, commission member, who we'll, we'll uh, identify in a little bit, he said they already know, the commission members, about the Jack Ruby connection to organized crime, but they don't want to touch it. It's more than Oswald, but Hoover and Earl Warren, the chief justice, keep pushing the Oswald alone, alone conclusion. Our new president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, wants to cover up and move on. They, the commission members, say that the Oswald conclusion is going to be good for God and country, but there is internal corruption, and I don't know why. So, as you can imagine, I wrote that down as quickly as I could. I talked to him a couple more times, and finally I, I asked the question I want to. How did you know Dorothy Kilgallen? He said, well, he, she was a friend of Ken, Senator Cooper's. I used to go to what he called hmm. soirees, uh, parties, at Senator Cooper's home at 29th and N Street, uh, in Georgetown. And uh, Jackie Kennedy and Jack Kennedy would come at times uh, because they were close friends with the with the Coopers. But I used to sit right at the dinner table, uh, and I picture this in my mind. It's, it's so visual. Sit next to Dorothy Kilgallen. And he said, you know, she was a bright light bulb, and she was an investi investigative reporter even when she was having dinner trying to get information out of me uh, about, uh, about the senator. And I said, is that right? And he said, yes. And he said, yes, this just opens up a lot of questions for me, Mr. Wolf. I said, I have to ask you this. You know, Dorothy ended up with the Warren Commission uh, Jack Ruby testimony. And she printed it on the front page of the Journal American, her newspaper. You know, she was syndicated to 200 mm -hmm. newspapers across the country and everything. And I said, you know, we've never known what happened as to how she would have gotten that because she was grilled by some of JFK's agents. She wouldn't, uh, she wouldn't answer questions. Uh, sometimes she just refused to, to even acknowledge the questions or answered no or whatever and didn't give any clues as to what happened. And I said, is it possible that Senator Cooper would be the one who would have given her that information since he was so dis uh, disgusted with what was going on at the Warren Commission? And the words I'll never forget, he said, it's very likely, because he was a man who had a lot of integrity, just like Dorothy was a woman who had a lot of integrity, and he couldn't pick, put up with misinformation and that kind of thing. And so that, that just was, was such, so startling to me that I had been able to bring a new piece of the information together. And then as we talked, I got the feeling that also this corruption that went on the, at the Warren Commission uh, Mr. Wolf felt like it was very likely that that information had been passed on to, to Dorothy as well. So now you know, and I did, that she, she has so much information that is deadly to people like all of the members of the Warren Commission, including Earl Warren and, and then JFK, or, uh, uh, LBJ and, uh, and Hoover and the Kennedy brothers who try to block the investigation because uh, LBJ and Hoover stack the deck with only Oswald alone type believers, uh, and, and that is proven in the new book, uh, Collateral Damage. 
So it, it really, um, you know, as I say, uh, gave me kind of what I thought was a final piece of the pl- puzzle because you can take it all the way through from the 60 election, all the way through Marcello, all the way through JFK dying, then to the, the Warren Commission, and then here's Dorothy in November of 1965 with all of this uh, information and going to write a book about it. And as you can imagine, they couldn't let that happen. And, and how do we know she was right about all this? They killed her. <laughs> you, you said a great deal there, and believe it or not, we're not even scratching the surface of the incredible story that Mark Shaw tells in his book, Fighting for Justice. Not only is it a great examination of th- at least three deaths, because you also deal a little bit with the uh, death of uh, Robert F. Kennedy as well, mm-hmm. but it's also sort of a great mini-memoir covering the last few years of your life and how incredible the uh, the result of the reporter who knew too much has been for your life and how much uh, that you've changed. A yeah. couple of things, and uh, I could talk with you all day, and uh, I'd love to do something like a podcast with you on a regular basis covering sure. some of these issues, but uh, you... Uh, the other day on the anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, I played some audio of Gary Hart, who was a senator who was on the congressional committee that investigated the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, and Martin Luther King, and he believed that it was a conspiracy. You actually allude to the woman who ended his presidential campaign in your book, uh, Donna Rice. We all remember Donna Rice and the good ship monkey business. What in the world does... uh, Why did Donna Rice pop into your head as you were researching some of this stuff? Well, because I knew her when I... You know, I've had a lot of careers, as you may know. I was a criminal defense, well, almost flunked out of Purdue and then got my degree, almost didn't do too well in law school, but then I was a pretty prominent criminal defense lawyer and then a network legal analyst for, for the Tyson case and O.J. and and Kobe Bryant and all of that. But uh, in, in the midst of all of that, I started getting my... I got my license to practice law out in California and I became an attorney in, uh, in uh, Beverly Hills. And one day I got a call because I was kind of known as someone who liked to defend women's rights and so on and so forth. And she said it was Donna Rice. And I said, oh, my gosh. She said, well, yes, I need to talk to you. And we sat at a small cafe there. And uh, she just poured her heart out. Uh, her reputation had been ruined because of the alleged affair with Gary Hart. You know, And so many people were hated her because they loved Gary Hart. And they wanted him to become president. I don't want to forget to tell you, you should ask Matt Whining, who uh, works for a mutual friend of ours, John Casamadaris. I always say his name wrong. Yeah, Casamatidis, uh, believe it or not. Uh, I, I know his name better than I know my own. Yeah, there you go. But Matt uh, worked for Gary Hart. And I, I never knew that. Oh, I didn't know that either, actually. I will ask yeah, him. And he that. was actually there on the day that the uh, alleged affair took place in in that uh, boat or uh, yacht or whatever it was. So that was fascinating to me. But that kind of fit in with everything because, you know, uh, you, you, just, you just can't imagine how these kind of things come together. Uh, people call it crowdsourcing, which means that I throw out my material in my books and presentations and things, and I guarantee you perhaps – from one of your listeners tonight, they'll get in touch with me with a tip or whatever it was or watch a presentation or something like that. So I would owe it all to those people who have come forward with that, but especially to Dorothy, because uh, when you're not smart enough to do uh, as well as other people can, you want to find somebody who's, who's smarter than you. And Dorothy is the most credible investigator of the JFK assassination uh, in history. And uh, any book or anything else that's written about the assassination without her research in it, uh, it doesn't make any sense. So uh, I've had Dorothy on my side since the beginning. 
The um, and again, we're talking with Mark Shaw, best-selling author of *The Reporter Who Knew Too Much*. He's written a number of books. The latest out today: *Fighting for Justice: The Improbable Journey to Exposing Cover-Ups About the JFK Assassination and the Deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen*. Uh, you mentioned how a lot of your involvement in investigating these cases began with Marvin Belli. You say in the book that Marvin Belli was not surprised when Jack Ruby died suddenly. What did he say about his lack of surprise in terms of Jack Ruby's death? Well, it's interesting how I find these people. And uh, I, I'm, I'm pleased then that they trust me with their information, just like Morris Wolf did. Uh, these are my contributions to history. I put them in the books. People can make up their own mind what they think and all that. But uh, I knew Mr. Belli in the 1980s. I practiced law with him in San Francisco. Uh, I wrote a biography of him, uh, and I learned more about his uh, affiliation with the mafia. His main client was Mickey Cohen, a Los Angeles gangster. So he loved the mafia, as one of his associates said, and they loved him. He used to go to Las Vegas and hang out with them. He was kind of a hanger-on to those people. And so uh, I was able to track down one of his best friends, and the best friend told me a couple things, but one of them, which hit me hard because it basically uh, proves that Belli knew about the assassination before it took place, because a waiter walked up to them having a dinner at Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco and said, you, you, wait a minute, you guys, you'll never believe it. A guy named Jack Ruby just shot Lee Harvey Oswald, and this man swear that Belli said, well, uh, now I'll have to defend Ruby instead of Oswald. Well, the only way that he would be able to say that is he, if he was kind of on call. And, and, and that then stretches on to that Joe Campisi being the first visitor to Jack Ruby in jail. Uh, he's Marcello's underling, and so he goes to, to see Jack Ruby, and what does he say? I'm going to get you a great lawyer. And that great lawyer was Melvin Belli, who sold him down the river by using this insanity defense and, and um, uh, you know, the whole situation there with uh, uh, not letting him testify. Now you take that and you look at one of the other ingredients in what uh, Morris Wolf was told uh, by this uh, senator, John Sherman Cooper of Kentucky. That's his name, and people will learn about him in the book. But in, in the uh, material uh, that I have... Um, the, uh, John Sherman Cooper said uh, they know about they know about Oswald and uh, being involved with organized crime, and they don't want to do anything about it. Well, just think right there is such a clue. Uh, they should have done something uh, with that link because that link with Jack Ruby would have would have taken them uh, because of what Dorothy Kilgallen knew and all that right back to Marcello. You see, Frank, one of the things that drives me crazy about all this is the corruption and everything. Right. But because this Oswald alone theory, this conclusion came out, everything stopped. It shouldn't have. They never investigated Marcello. They never investigated J. Edgar Hoover covering all this up. Um, you know, they got away with all of that. And, and that's, the, that's the crime of Senator Cooper and all of those on the commission. Cooper at one point tried to resign. He wanted it. He and another senator won a dissent in the final report, saying they didn't believe in the uh, Oswald, the uh, silver bullet theory, uh, and the Oswald alone situation. They were guaranteed that would be in the final report. It wasn't. So all of this, uh, you know, meshes together. But as as, a, as one person said to me today, all of this was evil. These men. Uh, I have a, a tape recordings, auto tape recordings of of LBJ and Hoover setting up 
the uh, the commission members with only ones who they know are going to vote for Oswald mm. alone. And of most interest in there, by the way, there is a situation where they go ahead and they talk about that there's a dirty columnist on the East Coast who might cause them some problems. Well, we know who they were alluding <laughs> wow. to there. And you have the transcript of those uh, Johnson-Hoover conversations in the book. It's fascinating to read. Uh, again, I could talk with you all day, and hopefully we sure. can continue this conversation soon. Two final areas that I want to ask you about before we uh, run out of time. One has to do with something you cover in the book regarding Dorothy Gilgallen's interest in UFOs. Uh, You write that, Dorothy, I'm interested in UFOs. We talk about them a lot on uh, on this program. What exactly was Dorothy's interest, and how did that register on the radar screen of the CIA? Well, you know, they were suspicious of Dorothy all the way back to 1954. I found CIA documents looking into what she'd said on her radio program. Hoover was looking into a, a, a science club that she had at uh, P.J. Clark's with a bunch of people. I mean, they were always on top of that. And then, you know, I have this CIA document in the, in the uh, well, it was in Collateral Damage and, and the other books, but now in this book. And it talks about her interest in UFOs, Marilyn Monroe's interest in UFOs, and Dorothy and, and JFK's interest in UFOs. Dorothy was interested. She went to a UFO convention in London at one point, and I have that uh, column that she wrote about that as well. In the new book also, I have a photograph. It's a little fuzzy, but it's a photograph of Dorothy in New Mexico at the site where the UFOs have been found and so on and so forth, area, whatever it's called. And also um, a postcard that she sent to one of her friends confirming that she was there. So uh, for whatever reason, that was something that uh, mystified her. But there's no, no, there's no question that, uh, you know, uh, she, she would have kept kind of looking into all of that and, and, and seeing what happened for sure. Finally, you mentioned almost casually uh, something in our early part of our conversation that I think is going to take a lot of our listeners by surprise. The fact that John F. Kennedy had a wife prior to Jackie. Who exactly was that and when was that marriage? Well, you know what's interesting here? People people are going to say, hey, you know, we've always known the Warren Commission was corruption. Well, that was just speculation. Now we have an eyewitness there, a whistleblower right there at the time. Well, the whole thing with Jack Ruby's trial, you know, and what went on there, we, we can speculate. Well, Dorothy was there. I wasn't there. These other so-called experts weren't there and all of that kind of thing. And so, you know, I like to be able to uh, give uh, the reader as much information as I possibly can so they can make up their own mind as to what happened. And, uh, you know, t- t- give me your question again. I want to make sure that I answer it correctly. My, my question ahead. was, who was John F. Kennedy's first wife, and when oh, yeah. was he married to yeah. this person? Well, he was he, in, 19, in 1947. I don't have the woman's name in front of me here, uh, but it's in the book. Uh, he was in Palm Beach, which makes sense. The Kennedys had a big uh, home down there on the ocean. And he met this beautiful, beautiful woman. And uh, they were dating. And he was, uh, you know, being a womanizer, uh, as, as all the Kennedys were, including their father. Uh, he wanted to uh, have some sexual relations with her. But this woman had some morals. And she said, no, I won't do it unless you marry me. And I have the documents to prove it. Uh, one's an FBI document, another local document from down there. Uh, they went to the courthouse in Palm Beach, and they got married. 
And, of course, when Joe Kennedy found out, he went crazy. And Joe Kennedy was uh, better at one thing than anything else he did. He could cover up anything. And so apparently he and cohorts went down to the Palm Beach um, courthouse and uh, and got this document. Uh, they got these documents that showed they were married and destroyed them. Well, somehow or another, and I, I can look here and see if I have the file, just a second, somebody, uh, you know, either got a copy of that or they decided somehow or another that they could put it all together, and they did, and uh, it, they came up with this woman's name and who she was involved with, and what's really, oh, here it is, her name was um, Blauvelet, B-L-A-U-V-E-L-T, and in the, in the document it says, Copies of the materials are attached here too, and we noted that in the left-hand column of page 884, there is listed a member of the family, 11th generation, Dury Kerr Malcolm, pointed out that the statement is contained certain that the third husband of Dury was John F. Kennedy, son of Joseph Kennedy, the one-time ambassador to England. So that it was documented, and he was never divorced, and so when he married Jackie, basically he was a bigamist which made the children illegitimate. And, and it's just, in some ways, it's indicative of the, the way the Kennedys lived. You know, with, in, the, in the Kennedy neurosis, they talk about how they treated the women in that family. We know about with Jackie, but Rose, the mother, and every one of the Kennedy women, how terrible they were treated and, and exposed to them bringing girlfriends or mistresses or whatever to the home and things like that. So... Uh, it's more than just the fact that, that he was a bigamist and, and, and all of that. It's, it's the moral value that was lacking mm. in, in the whole Kennedy uh, men family. It's a fascinating story. Mark Shaw, it is always a treat to talk with you. I'll look forward to our next conversation very much. It's a deal. Thanks, Frank. And I apologize for going on and on. As you can Oh, no, see, I please. I love it. This. I'd love it. I, I'll <laughs> sit back and listen all day. Uh, we've been talking with Mark Shaw. His new book, Out Today. Check it out. Fighting for Justice. It's available wherever books are available. Uh, the Improbable Journey to Exposing Cover-Ups about the John F. Kennedy assassination and the deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen. And believe it or not, I know we covered a lot of ground just now. We did not even scratch the surface. There's a lot of great stuff in this book that you have to check out. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Blue Cantrell, hit him up style. Yeah, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We'll take your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Big day yesterday in the Morano household. We did, and it was relatively painless, one of my least favorite annual chores. And we put up 
uh, Christmas lights. Now, the Christmas lights that we have put up this year, because even my wife is, I think, realizing what an unproductive use of time uh, this might be. The Christmas lights we put up this year, we did, we got some garland that we sort of draped around our front porch, and the garland is lit. And we also, and this was my suggestion, we emulated some of our neighbors on this, and we got these uh, projection lights where you just stick a stake in the ground and it projects lights onto the house. I love these because they require minimal work. Now, they don't look as nice and as elaborate as the old-style Christmas lights, but what a relief that my wife went along with this this year. Very, very pleased. Also, um, you know, we're not big into gifts, and um, especially for our son, who's one, he's not even really going to realize he has more toys than he knows what to do with, and his favorite toys are cardboard boxes and water bottles. So we we essentially agreed long ago that we were not going to make uh, gift giving a big thing for him on Christmas. So I don't know that we're we're going to get him anything, and maybe our relatives will. And Rachel said to me the other day, "Can we promise one another that we're not going to get each other a Christmas gift this year?" So, um, and that is I, that is a promise that I have violated in the past because I've seen things that I think she really will like, and um, and I've gotten them. But this year, honestly, because of childcare expenses and everything else, we're so broke that this is a promise that I'm going to have no problem keeping. So as it stands now, the only people I think I need to get gifts for um, uh, are my mom and uh, my father and stepmother. I don't know that anybody else is on my essential gift list. Now, you have to give a cash gift to the sanitation folks, the newspaper delivery people. A couple of people, but this is the shortest list of folks I've ever had to get gifts for. My siblings and I all have a gift of nothing packed where we're not getting one another or anything. So I'm very excited about this. Oh, and um, in, at my wife's family, we we're, there's a, a Secret Santa style thing, but we celebrate it during Hanukkah. So we call it a Mystery Moses. So I have one person in that, and that's that's no big deal. And I think at Christmas Eve, there's a big Christmas Eve party at my dad's. We do what they call a white elephant, where you bring a random gift, and that gift can be traded or something along those lines. But that's fine. Uh, The stress of gift giving and putting up lights around Christmas, to me, it's stress that I don't need, quite frankly. It's stress that I don't have time for, number two. And it is um, it is something that uh, I think really kind of takes away from the spirit of the holiday, which is supposed to be about spirituality and uh, Christianity and religion. And even if you're not religious, spending time with family and friends. So, uh, so far, my Christmas season is off to a swimming start because of those two decisions. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Anna in West in Washington Heights. Hello, Anna. Hi, Frank. I just have a tidbit of information relating to the JFK murder and the mafia in New Orleans. I it was 1965 spring, and I was a backup dancer in a Latin club for a very famous woman named Chris Owens. It was owned by her then husband, who since died, <clears throat> named Saul Owens, and he was I'm pretty sure mafia connected. One night of uh, young woman came in. She couldn't have been dancing because she wouldn't have had time to learn the routine. But she came in and um, she was there for work. At the end of the night, we found her in the ladies' room, all hunched up and crying. 
and we asked her what was the matter. I mean, she was hysterical. And she had worked in Jack Ruby's club in Fort Worth. And she said she was running. She said, they're killing everybody. I'm so scared. And I never saw her again. I assumed she left town. And just recently I thought, I don't know why I thought she left town. Maybe she never left because she was terrified. So that's just this little odd tidbit. Interesting. Well, and thank you for the call, and I appreciate you sharing that. You remember the clip that I played last week of my interview with Gary Hart? He talked about all these people that were that had a relationship with these assassins, not just John F. Kennedy, but Robert F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King, that ended up dead themselves, which I thought was astounding. And it's an aspect of this that I think very few people have talked about. 800-848-9222. We'll take your calls in a minute. Until then, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. been I've never used a dating app in my life. I've never used a dating app or a dating website which was sort of the uh, predecessor to a dating app. These days if I if you're out in the dating community, it's not just for young people either. I think a lot of older folks this is how they meet people these days. It's almost become um more unusual to not meet someone online or through a dating app. Uh, I hope she doesn't mind me mentioning this, but my mother mm-hmm. and her longtime companion, her domestic partner, who she uh, lives with, they met on a dating app. I believe that uh, I don't want to speak for Alex Barnard. He can come in and speak for himself if he wants. He certainly has shown no hesitancy in uh, doing that. But I believe he and his girlfriend met through a dating app. Um, what's your story, Matt Blaze? You meet your girlfriend through a dating app? Uh, you're so antisocial and don't go to anything that I'm imagining there's a pretty good chance that 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 occurred. No, it did not. No, so you <laughs> no. met her somewhere in person. Yes, yes. I don't, I don't. It was at a mutual friend's party. Okay, I'm shocked that you were at a party. That's the, that's the most shocking well, that part was, of it. That was a long time ago. Things yeah. have changed in the last. I guess so. I guess 15 so. Fifteen years. You or are a psychologist's dream, my friend. Um. And, Kenneth, what's your story? Are you a dating app guy, or have you tried dating apps? I have used them, but... You have a special mainly, one for models or something? No, no. Mainly on those, I've found, like, it's more so for, like, casual hookups rather than, like, actually dating the person. Okay, well, what, like uh, Tinder and things of yeah, that nature, Tinder right? Yeah, Bumble, mainly. Gotcha, okay. Yeah. Well, but anyway, I think you would all agree that it's become a standard thing in this, this is how you meet people now. And uh, I've never done this, so I don't have a lot of experience with this. But I stumbled upon a dating – I read an article, I think it was in the New York Post, about a dating app that I think is really neat and pretty creative. And maybe it's one of these things that's a startup that it sounds cool, it's kind of a novelty, and it won't be if uh, you you actually try to use it. Maybe the implementation is clunky or maybe it's the kind of thing that – you know, it sounds cooler than it actually is. 
But what I've always said is I've noticed this de-evolution of standard courtship over the years. We're now in an era where if you see a, a prospective romantic partner at a bar, woman, man, heterosexual, homosexual, whatever, if you go up to that person and start a conversation cold and say something like, you know, may I buy you a drink, you're now considered the weirdo. Bars, to the extent that they serve any function in the courtship process, bars really exists as safe designated meetup locations that you've prearranged to meet someone on that you have been having a role, uh, at least, you know, conversation with on one of these apps. So I really got a kick out of this one uh, app that I learned about the other day. I think it's relatively new. I think it's a couple of months old. It's called It's On Meet. Have you heard of this? It's a it's a uh, it's an app where you can meet people, but the way that you instead of swiping right or swiping left or checking a box or something that you like someone and they can check the box that they like you back, the way that you do this apparently, and I'm curious if anybody has tried this. I, I, I suspect not because it's relatively new, but the way that you do this. Is and it's free in the app store. They're not an advertiser. I'm not promoting them. Is you buy them a drink. You connect with a person by buying them a drink first on the app. I think that's really neat. If they accept it, a chat window will be unlocked. If they don't accept the drink, the money comes back to you. I think this is really clever. I think this is a great way to kind of... um, combine the oldest way that people have been meeting and, uh, you know, sharing sharing fellowship over the course of the last 70 years and a great way to combine the modern conveniences of social media and app-based dating. Here's what the website says. It's called, uh, and the website's uh, itsonmeet.com, M-E-E-T. Get it? It's a pun. It's on me. And it's, it's on meat. It's on meat.com. Buying someone a drink, this is what it says in terms of why we made this. Buying someone a drink is the oldest, most effective way to say, I admire your work, like you, or are interested in meeting you. It's on meat is a social app that helps you unlock who you want to meet by accepting a drink or not. So you find the person you'd like to connect with. Connect with. You buy them a drink and send them a nice intro message. They accept the drink. You can talk to them. They can redeem their drink, and it's not just booze. You can they can redeem their drink, redeem their drink on Starbucks or DoorDash. And if they don't, they don't like you. They don't want to deal with you. The money comes back to you uh, through, I, I guess, PayPal or something along those lines. I think this is really neat. I'm curious one if anyone has tried this, and two if you would try something like this because I, I again I'm not a dating app guy, so I can't see myself even if I were single using a dating app but if i ever if they they said you know you absolutely must try a dating app i would try this one curious what your thoughts are on this 800-848-9222 i think it's creative this is terrible you don't like it this is the dumbest idea ever what i concur because what's going to keep somebody from just taking the drink and never talking to you well i mean look that that is 
the oldest trick in the book, right? That's why when I was young and, and trying to meet women at bars, I wouldn't – and I learned this from my friend, the great Vic, Vic, Vic Christopher, who to this day is the greatest ladies' man I have ever encountered. Wilt Chamberlain used to take meetings with Vic Christopher to take notes from Vic on how to score with women. And Vic told me – and I was very young at the time. He was 26. I was uh, 17. So there was a big disparity in our ages. Vic told me the one thing you can never do at a bar is buy a woman a drink because then if they're nice to you, you're not going to know if they're nice to you because they're buying a drink, you've bought them a drink, or if they really like you. And I've tried to follow that advice, not always successfully. But it's the same thing if you buy a girl a drink at a bar. They can take the drink and drink it and not want to go out with you or not want to talk with you. So how is that any different? Well, that's exactly what's going to happen is they're going to sign up with no intention. It could be a married woman, no intention of ever going on a date, getting tons of drinks, and will never probably have to pay for a Starbucks ever again in her entire life as long as she's on this dating app because she will never, ever talk to anyone or meet anyone. Well, I imagine that there'll be some way to... To rate people that do that. If you're constantly accepting drinks and then you're giving these guys the cold shoulder and then the chat window opens, you know, you'll be able to chat with them. I like this. I think this is very creative. I don't think it's going to work. And you're against this also, Kenneth? Yeah, I, 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 I've I, seen this all too often. You, you buy the girl a drink and they either go to the next guy to scheme the same well, that's way. That's true. They do do that. Or they just don't talk to you after that. Uh, so that I, it, I think it is it's true. Dumb. They do do that. Yeah, I, I, I knew girls in college that would say, I'm going to the bar with no money because I will not pay for a drink all night. Well, that's true. Because oh. guys would just give them drinks all night. A hundred percent. It's funny. Um, I remember when I was single and my brothers were very young, there's a substantial uh, age gap between us. And we were at um, my uh, my dad's and we were having dinner. And I don't know if my sister was there. She might not have been. She might have been away at school or something. And um, I, I don't remember. This is many years ago. And... Uh, <laughs> And Nick was complaining, my brother Nick, essentially about this same kind of behavior. And Nick is, I think, a little more frugal, at least back then, uh, than, uh, than, than I was and am. And um, he makes a, a point about how women should buy uh, more drinks or something along those lines. And his mother, my stepmother, says, no, that's not true. Women buy drinks all the time. And the one thing that all three of us, Nick, Alex, and I agreed on was that we have never seen this. We have never seen single young women go to a bar and pay for any drinks. Because if the guys at the bar that are trying to meet them aren't buying their drinks, then the bartender's buying their drinks. Um, I still like the app. I think it's creative. I think it's fun. And I would go on this app if uh, if I ever had to go on an app. Curious what you guys think. Uh, there's uh, one, two, three, four open lines, 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. It's going to be very controversial. But you know what? I love controversy. You know, I was reading an email from Lionel, not sent directly to me, but sent to his whole email list. And he lists just like 200 random thoughts that he has. And he says something to the effect of talk radio used to be fun when you would listen to a host and you would be terrified or just really anticipating what they would say, that they could be two minutes away from costing the station their license or getting fired. Now, these days, so much of talk radio seems so safe, so predictable. And that's my big complaint with the medium of talk radio today, is I think if you want to hear unpredictable content, you have to go elsewhere. Uh, Not on this show. Not on this show. Because I like to live dangerously. And we're going to have... General Thomas 
McInerney on. General Thomas McInerney is a retired U.S. Air Force general. He used to basically run the Air Force. He served in top positions for the president, for the secretary of defense, and he's going to join us. We're going to talk about national security. We're going to talk about the elections. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of things, as much as we can fit in. He's got a new book out, which I've read. I'm going to challenge him on some of the points that he's raised in this. He's a controversial guy. No telling what he'll say. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking with him, as I would anybody that's controversial. You know, Bill de Blasio, there's a seat for you. By the way, Bill de Blasio did not live up to his word about coming on this show. I want to make that clear. Andrew Cuomo, there's a seat for you. Donald Trump, seat for you. I, I even, the first day of that, uh, that kerfuffle with the Kanye West dinner, who I would invite on this show, Nick Fuentes. I reached out to him. No response. Uh, but I figured if the whole world's going to be commenting and calling him a white supremacist, we should at least find out if that's true or not. 800 Uh So we're going to get to General McInerney in a minute. Roger is in Westchester. Hello, Roger. Uh, hi, Frank. I just had a quick question about the last interview. He's very good, I must say. Thank you. Um, yes, one thing. Uh, he mentioned about the Warren Commission. Uh, one of the members on the Warren Commission was a guy, a senator by the name of Hal Boggs. Just coincidentally, uh, Cokie Roberts' father. Oh, um, I didn't realize. I knew who Hal Boggs was. I didn't know that was Cokie Roberts' father. Yes. A, a plane uh, goes down in Alaska. Uh, never found again. Uh, I think he said, Mr. Shaw said last week, ironically, the person who drove him to the airport was an intern by the name of Bill Clinton. I don't remember that. Yeah, I, I don't remember that. I remember, uh, obviously, the story of his disappearance. I don't remember the Bill Clinton connection. Yeah, I think he said it on your last show. I'm just curious to know if he thought there was anything sinister about this plane going down. Yeah, it's a great question. I will look into that uh, further. But, you know, I, I am going to have Mark back because I actually had pages of questions that I didn't get to. And we've been talking actually about doing a regular podcast together where we explore some of these issues. But uh, I am doing a little research now. In 1997, President Clinton appointed Lindy Boggs, the uh, U.S. ambassador to uh, the Vatican, that was uh, that was Congressman Bog's wife, and right. she she stayed there until two thousand one. So I don't know. Maybe there's something to what you uh, what you're saying. I will look into it, Roger. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Gary is in Inwood. Hello, Gary. Good morning, Frank. A situation where one of my friends took me to a bar in Manhattan, and my wife was there, at, who I didn't know at the time. He knew her. He introduced me to her. I bought her a drink. We had a conversation. Spent hours together, took her home, and we've been together ever since. Wonderful. See, it works out sometimes. Yes, it does. I love to hear that, Gary. Good for you. How long are you married? 43 years. Wonderful. That's great. Congratulations. Uh, I'm glad you told Thank that you, story. Friend. Thank, Thank you, you, Gary. I appreciate that. See, sometimes buying a drink works. The Vic Christopher method is not always. That's not the same thing. Why not? Because he was introduced by a friend to her. It was like he went up to some strange it's girl. It's someone he met. It's someone he met. But she knew his friend already. So it, it wasn't matter. a total stranger. Look, I don't get dating apps for exactly the reason that you're talking about. I don't get how you can um, you know, do this on a regular basis. Hey, I'll tell you one bar I have been to, and uh, that is really one of the last old school 
New York dive bars, and I went there and consumed copious amounts of bourbon with uh, our own Alex Barnard one morning, and this is what I think I love about it, and uh, it's on the west side of Manhattan. It is owned by Xavier in Manhattan. Xavier, give me your perspective as a bar owner. Frank, first of all, been a while. As a bar owner, you buy a girl a drink. They, all you got to do is look at them, buy them a drink. That breaks the ice all the time. I've been in a, I've doing this 40 years. I have people, I have kids who parents met in my bar who are getting married. I have kids who've been in, who they have grandchildren. I love hearing that. Uh, that's great. So uh, what about this as an app? You've recognized that uh, people are now using a lot of these dating apps. What about this app where you buy someone a drink? You know, Frank, I, I just find this hilarious. <laughs> well, I don't get it. I've been doing, I'm, again, I'm 67 years old. I've been doing this for 41 years. Women and men meet in bars. Drinks fly left and right. It's, you know what the best part is now? The women are buying the dudes drinks. Yeah, not any women I ever met, that's for sure. Uh, I think you could count think- on one hand in the, the decades that I've been going to bars, the number of times uh, a woman's bought me a drink. I mean, maybe I- as a, somebody that I've been friends with for years. Uh, and, Xavier, your place is Billy Marks West, right, on 9th? 29th at night. Yes, sir. People should check it out. It's a great place. One of my favorites. Thank you, Xavier. Uh, Those of you that are holding, we'll get to you. Whether you're talking JFK, whether you're talking Christmas, whether you're talking um, girls buying drinks, whether you're talking that it's on Meet app, which I I love this, uh, or anything else, we'll get to you. But uh, General Thomas McInerney is waiting in the wings straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It seems the one thing that people are pretty consistent about, whether they're on the left, whether they're on the right, whether they're in the center, whether they consider themselves non-political, is they don't necessarily think things are going too well in America these days. Well, someone who has released essentially a playbook for how he thinks America can be back on the right track is also... Probably the person with one of the lengthiest resumes we've ever spoken to on this program. He is a decorated military officer, having served as a lieutenant general. He is someone who has been a senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense. He was uh, the director of the Defense Performance Review, vice chair of uh, vice chief of staff, excuse me, of the Air Force, and someone that 
has uh, been very, very active in the public sector as well as the private sector. Now he's the author of the new book, America's Endgame for the 21st Century, a blueprint for saving our country. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome General Thomas McInerney. General, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thank you very much for having me, Frank. It's a great honor. Uh, the honor is mine, sir. I know you've been very active, as I mentioned, in the private sector, particularly when it comes to using technology to improve people's lives over the course of the last couple of decades. What would you characterize as the biggest difference between li- life in the military and life in the private sector? Well, for me, it, uh, it, uh, because of 9-11 and that, I got involved with the uh, media uh, initially by accident. And uh, then, of course, with 9-11, I uh, became heavily involved when I do three to five Fox shows a day. And it had to all do with national security, Frank. So that's that's my involvement. And I've gotten involved with elections in that. And you're going to say, well, what is a retired general doing involved with elections? Well, it's very simple. It's national security, Frank. For instance, what we have found is our adversaries used in the 2020 election, they just did it in the 2022, the midterms, used cyber warfare in the elections. And it truly was a red wave. But with cyber warfare, for instance, Dr. Oz had 330,000 votes with cyber. That doesn't count the mail-in ballots because the, uh, the midterms, they used heavily mail-in and cyber, and, and they tweaked the cyber. But they took 330,000 votes cyber-wise from Dr. Oz, and he lost by 150,000, and he didn't protest and have an audit because that's the only way you find out when cyber warfare has been used. And, and I happen to be in the edge cloud business now, in the cloud business, So I'm intimately familiar with this technology, commercial-wise, and then how they have perverted it uh, by stealing, under the Obama administration, a system called Hammer and Scorecard, which was a CIA program that I reported on March 19, 2017, that the CIA had used and that the Obama administration was using to listen to the campaign, our good President Trump, as well as once he was in office. So that's how I got involved. Those are national security issues. Mm. And uh, what has stunned me is they've been so clever about it, they put anybody that would question an election, would they immediately uh, make them a a target, demonize them, make them very evil for talking about the issue. And that's why you haven't heard anybody We all predicted the red wave, and now we're making excuses why it wasn't large enough. Yes, the Republicans won the House, but they lost. They're either going to tie or lose the Senate. And I can tell you, they actually won. I mentioned Dr. Oz, who won, and and Fetterman was an easy target. I mean, he's a doofus. He can't even carry on a conversation. So you're telling me that the people in uh, Pennsylvania elected this guy over Dr. Oz, please. If they, if Dr. Oz would have questioned Frank, the election by doing an audit, an audit is different than a recount. 
A sure. recount counts garbage in, garbage out. An audit can tell at a certain certain the Greenwich Mean Time that votes were stolen from a person. The mail-in ballots requires you to look at the ballots and see is it a, a registered voter, where does he live, is he in your state, etc. A recount just counts it. So like in the 2020 election, the state of Pennsylvania mailed out 1.8 million ballots to Pennsylvania residents because of coronavirus. They got back, Frank, 2.4 million ballots. So wait, somebody had to have a printing press, didn't they? By the way, they did in China. But they counted all 2.4 million ballots, even though they'd only mailed out 1.8 million. So Um, you see the, the challenge we're having where the Obama administration, in concert with others, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, has started to, as uh, uh, I think it was uh, Joseph Stalin said, it's not who votes, it's who counts the votes. They're in that game plan now. And that's why everybody is making excuses why the Republicans didn't win more. Well, they didn't vote early enough, or and the lines like out in Arizona were so long that Carrie Lake, I mean, she is protesting, as she rightly should, because she had massive mail-in ballots, plus Carrie had 28,000 votes stolen with her using cyber. Now, she is behind by 17,000 right now, even with the tidal wave of mail-in. But if if I could get the source that gave me that, I think he doesn't realize it, but his, his lawyers to protect them from the State Secret Act, I think, are being played for, and I haven't said this on, tele, on radio or anything before, Frank. I think his wow. lawyers are being paid by the CIA. Wow. I mean, that that's uh, that's quite a claim. You said quite a bit there, uh, and I want to follow up on as much as I can. And this is one of the reasons I was so eager to get you on the radio, because you don't shy away from saying anything that people could uh, consider controversial or, uh, or anything like that. And I, I'm not going to parse everything that you said there, because uh, we, you know, we have a finite amount of time. And I do want to uh, comment on your, uh, get you to comment rather on your book tell me uh what made you uh, what made you come out with this book what made you write this book america's end game for the 21st century what are you hoping to accomplish with it well i'm hoping to lay in the seeds of of why why we have changed in america why our belief in god why these basics our history all these things are extremely important they want to change names of, uh, of the military bases that were named after Confederate generals. But people don't realize most of those bases were formed in the, uh, in, as we went into World War II and we opened up these bases. But the fact was, we still in those days, after the Civil War, had to bring America back together again. And the leaders who did that, Grant and others, wanted to get the South back in and and away from that uh, civil war that we had. There was still, even when I was born, and started just before World War II, even then there was differential between the South and the North. There is today. Everybody Mm -hmm. knows that. The leadership, and this is what I was taught at West Point, named them after Confederate generals to make the South part of the Union again. And it, it didn't do with that they... Uh, created the Civil War in defense of 
of slavery. It was to bring the nation back together again. Now you've got people, even after the incredible job that uh, Abraham Lincoln did in the Civil War to keep the Union together, they're pulling statues down on Lincoln. It, It just doesn't follow the coherence of how you keep a nation together, Frank. And so that's how I got involved in all this and wrote that book with my good friend, Major General Paul Vallelee. We'd written a book right after 9-11 or a year or so after called Endgame, The Blueprint for Victory in the War on Global Terrorism, and how it was with the radical Islamic group, and we had to understand that. If you don't understand the ideology you're fighting, how do you know why you're fighting? So this is a sequel to that because, look, if people think, that Afghanistan wasn't a deliberate surrender if they think it was a redeployment. They don't understand it. If they don't think the open borders where we have had 5 million people, illegals, come across the border isn't deliberately done to change America, they don't get it. If they don't think that we have the 8%, it's probably really more like 10 to 15% inflation that we have, isn't being done deliberately then they don't understand. If they don't understand critical race theory being taught in kindergarten and grade school and up through high school, as well as in college, that says your skin color has something to do with the with your morals and with your knowledge. Look, I was a fighter pilot my whole life in the Air Force, although I, I had a brief period that I started out in the Army in the 82nd Airborne Division. But my point is, uh, I was flying mostly single-seat fighters, Frank, and I remember as a Brigadier General launching almost 60 F-15s, single-seat fighters at Okinawa prior to leaving to show our troops how to handle mass. And uh, every one of those guys in that, those airplanes, I didn't care what his skin color was, who his mommy and daddy was, sure. where he went to school. I cared about his performance. That's what I cared about. Martin Luther King. It's the merit of the individual, not his skin color. And so now we have this administration talking about critical race theory and why your skin color is so important. It has nothing to do with the military. So that's why we wrote, Mm. that's a long answer to your good question of why (laughs) we wrote this book. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, retired Air Force General Thomas McInerney. He's the co-author of the book, America's Endgame for the 21st Century. General, let me take advantage of your national security expertise since you're here. Uh, I think everybody is paying attention to the situation in Ukraine and wondering what the potential implications are for the United States. Give me your thoughts thoughts on how you see the situation as it stands now and what you think the United States role should be going forward? That's an excellent question, Frank. And a lot of people are are mixing because they're kind of apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. Before the Russian invasion, there was a great deal of corruption going on. We know from Hunter Biden and uh, Joe Biden himself, a great deal of corruption going on with our money that we were putting into the Ukraine. And Joe Biden and his own question said, if you don't change this prosecutor that was investigating this company that his son was a board member, you're not going to get the $1 billion that we are going to give you. And lo and behold, five or six hours later, they fired him. The Ukraine, I'm pointing out, was corrupt then. But when Zelensky resisted 
And I was asked when it started how long I thought they'd last. I said about two weeks. What we have seen is a new man in Zelensky, and he motivated the Ukrainian people. I think we've all seen the devastation. And look, I can tell you, I've seen devastation like that personally. When I was a boy, my father was a colonel. We went to Germany right after World War II. I was in uh, junior high school. And Frank, when we landed, we went by ship and we took a train down to, we were down near Stuttgart because my father ran the Mercedes-Benz factories as well as the BMW factories. And they were using those before the Marshall Plan to rebuild U.S. vehicles that were damaged there in World War II. And they'd come out looking brand new. My father was an ordnance colonel. But I went into Frankfurt. We were on the train going down to a town near Stuttgart called Esslingen. And we got off the train at Frankfurt just to look around. And uh, I went out of the Bahnhof. It didn't, that's a train station. It didn't have a roof. I looked out around the city. Frank, it was flat, okay? Mm -hmm. This is very early 1949. The war had been over, oh, maybe three years. No Marshall Plan yet. We got in the train. We went down to Stuttgart because we had to take a, a car over to the uh, to Esslingen where we le lived because it hadn't been bombed. Got out of the Bahnhof, no roof on it. I looked around. Stuttgart was flat. We drove out, had a car for us. And we lived in the home, interesting, of a very wealthy German scientist who was involved in the uh, in the using the biological on human beings and the testing which we swore at Nuremberg never again. But in any case, so I spent three and a half years and left in 1952. I went to Berlin. The first train when the Berlin airlift was over because my father was a classmate of the commandant at, at uh, they were classmates at West Point. Betty McGraw was a major general running Berlin. So my dad was a troop commander. We went in the first train into Berlin. Flat, Munich, München flat. We went to Dachau. There wasn't any, any symbols or any tours at Dachau because it was right after the war, still an army of occupation. But I saw Dachau when it was in its rawness. The corpses were all gone, but the furnaces were not, etc. The barracks where they lived. Now, I gave you that long dissertation because we have moved into an area that people must understand, Frank, that COVID-19 was not a pandemic. It was a deliberate, deliberate biological attack, partially funded by Dr. Fauci with gain of function and the CDC. And it was deliberately unleashed on the world in 2019, November, December timeframe, but hit us early in the Chinese New Year, in which the Chinese flooded people around the world and it became, quote, a pandemic. And I don't need to remind our listeners mm -hmm. the life, the lockdowns, et cetera. But that was deliberately done. Now, I didn't know it at the time because in November I was working the election. But what I found out shortly thereafter, in 2005, the Chinese Communist Party promulgated a new strategy for global domination. And that strategy in 2005, to do it without using kinetic warfare, they were going to use, use massive biological warfare and massive cyber warfare. So what hit us in 2020, COVID-19, which CDC and Dr. Fauci, who helped fund it, 
with the Wuhan lab. They said it came from an open market, and just the other day, he wasn't sure that it was from the Wuhan Virology Lab number four. He was intimating still, this is Dr. Fauci, that it could have come from the wet market, the bat market. That's baloney. It was deliberate. We got hit with a deliberate biological attack, and then we got hit with cyber warfare, 2020, the six battleground states. That's Arizona. That's Nevada. That's Wisconsin. That's Michigan. That's Pennsylvania. And that's Georgia. Uh, General, now, just go ahead. Yes. Let me let me just say they're still doing that. And, and that's why it's so important that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's involvement with China and, uh, and the Ukraine. You asked me about the Ukraine. I mm-hmm. gave you a long answer. But they are fighting for their freedom. They clearly had problems before, Frank, and, and I'll not deny it. But some people, and I'm a great fan of Tucker, Tucker Carlson doesn't get the difference what Zelensky is as a wartime leader versus what he was as a peacetime leader in the corruption. And what they have been able to do going on nine months now, and I think it's very important that people understand. But getting back to what I said, the Chinese Communist Party wants global domination, and they're going to do it without using kinetic warfare. And that's why that we've got to be very careful what they do with Taiwan. Taiwan is far more difficult than the Ukraine. I guarantee you that. And it's important that we back the Ukrainians is the bottom line, I believe, because they're fighting for their freedom. And those 14 or 18 million Ukrainians, God bless them. Uh, they've done a hell of a job. So th- it sounds like this might be the one area where you may agree a little bit more with the Biden administration's approach to foreign policy than what President Trump is uh, saying. Essentially, President Biden pushed through a very generous aid package. We just gave the Ukrainians another $400 million last week in military aid and direct financial assistance, even though there's a lot of questions about accountability and where that money is going. President Trump made a point of mentioning in his uh, campaign kickoff announcement the importance of avoiding nuclear war and seeking a diplomatic solution to the uh, conflict with Russia and Ukraine. This might be the one area where you might be more Biden inclined than Trump. Is that fair? No, I, I'm, I'm with Trump on trying to negotiate, negotiate uh, a peace. We, we do not need this to escalate, Frank. We definitely do not. So I I want both. But I do not want the Ukrainians to just give up. They're fighting for freedom. God bless them. You've been very generous with your time. A couple of quick questions. And then uh, I promise I know it's an odd hour. I'll uh, I'll let you go. But uh, just to combine two of the issues that we've spoken about, the national security implications of the Russia situation and the 2020 election and a lot of the questions that people have about what transpired. You had said uh, in an interview with Mike Lindell prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine that the coverage of the Russian troop movements was at least in part designed to take the focus off the 2020 election. Given what we've seen from Russia since then and the invasion of Ukraine through the prism of hindsight, do you think that maybe you were wrong about that one? No, I think I'm right about it. How much do you hear anybody talking about the 2020 election or even the 2022 election and the corruption on that? But each evening on the evening news, we get a strong, uh, a strong discussion on Ukraine and we see the carnage the deliberate attack on apartments and people. Frank, this is this is tragic. This should never happen today where we're deliberately attacking homes and apartments like that. The world should be against Russia for doing it. And I believe the Russian people will rise up 
against him, too. In terms of the um, one of the things that you spell out in your book, each chapter you outline a challenge that America is facing or something that's wrong with America today. And then you offer a playbook for how individuals can turn things around. And one of the things that you emphasize in the book, America's Endgame for the 21st Century, is respect for law enforcement and not disrespecting police officers and things of that nature. One of the, even a lot of folks on the right who say the same thing of uh, respecting law enforcement, they do seem to have a little bit of a blind spot when it comes to what happened on January 6th. Now, even if folks are more sympathetic to the January 6th rioters than, say, the Black Lives Matter protesters, would you agree that the folks that rioted the Capitol on January 6th and disregarded a lot of the instructions from police officers at the time were not demonstrating the kind of respect for law enforcement that people should be demonstrating today? Yeah, to a degree. But, you know, as you notice, those those and I go to the Capitol a lot, Frank. They were letting those people in in many cases. They still should not have done what they did in trashing the place. And so there was a, and that should not have happened. But where I find the fault was Vice President Pence knew that that election had been hacked because they used a special access program called Hammer that they're still using. And because I haven't been briefed on it, I can talk about it. President Trump cannot talk about it. But they knew what they didn't realize initially was the Obama administration either sold it or gave it to the Chinese communists. And it was coming out of China. I didn't know that. And when I reported it back in March 19, 2017, they were doing it out of the uh, Port Washington CIA facility. And they were listening to U.S. citizens. But, But getting to the direct answer... Yeah, they made mistakes, but the FBI, even the Director Ray, will not say did he have informants, et cetera, participating in that riot. So it's a combination of both, but I'm, I'm all for law and order, and we cannot tolerate what's going on in our big cities now. General, so just in general, so I understand uh, your your analysis of both the 2020 election and the 2022 election. In essence, you believe that the heart of the election problems in both of those elections, including key Senate elections like in Pennsylvania, was hacking technology that was advocated for by the Chinese government? Well, it was a U.S. system called Hammer and Scorecard, a special access program that CIA is still using. And uh, I have a problem with why President Trump did not announce that. But uh, his intel people told him because it was a SAP program, they couldn't talk about it. Uh, And what I'm saying is the Democrats, in concert with the Chinese and the World Economic Forum, have been doing a host of things that uh, have violated our our national security and it was fundamentally a coup d'etat on that election. Trump actually got 81 million votes. It was not Biden that did. Does anybody think you can run a campaign in your basement and get 81 million votes, the most in the history of any American president? Right. Well, I, I think 
Yeah, no, I, I think a lot of the folks that voted for Biden by their own admission didn't necessarily do so out of an abundance of enthusiasm for him. It was more about uh, voting against uh, President Trump for uh, for whatever reason. But why would uh, Republican secretaries of state in places like Georgia, for instance, or Arizona and with, with places where there's a Republican governor in both instances, why would they go along or at least turn a blind eye to um, that kind of hacking or uh, Democratic or slash Chinese malfeasance in a key battleground state? Well, I think they've been cheating, too. Why didn't McConnell ever say anything? I, I, I cannot prove this. I don't have the evidence because you asked the right question, Frank. I think they've been cheating, too. A 13-year-old hacker could hack any one of the uh, voting systems we've gotten. So uh, uh, we've got to go back to the old-fashioned way. But why will not the Democrats allow any audits of any of those battleground states when they spend millions of dollars on lawyers preventing, preventing the audits of those states? The American people deserve audits of these elections to say, I'd love to be wrong, Frank, but I'm not wrong. And the fact if, is, if they demanded audits and they did them, like Carrie Lake has got to demand an audit. And she won, just like uh, the uh, the Republican like Dr. Won. Oz. Yeah, yeah, and Dr. Oz, but the Republican in uh, Arizona won. Uh, the Republican in Nevada won. Now, now those cases that you just mentioned, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Arizona, what is the evidence that the Republican in those places actually won? Well, the evidence is from a source I've got that's gone cold mic on me, and, mm. and I don't know why. Mm. Uh, as I say, I think his lawyers are being paid by CIA, but he doesn't realize it. Uh, Colonel, I, excuse me, General, I appreciate you being so generous with your time. Uh, I appreciate the uh, the time and I'll look forward to, I have pages more of questions, not only about the subjects that you raise in your book, America's Endgame, but a lot of follow-ups on uh, a lot of the things that we've discussed in the last 25 minutes. I appreciate the time. Thank you for your service to the country. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Frank, let's do it again. And uh, I, I know it sounds tin haddish because it has never happened before. This is the greatest threat. If, if you think that the elections didn't turn out right, and there's a lot of reason not to, that this needs to be examined. It's the greatest threat ever in our history. If we lose well, it, this democracy, which we're about to do, we, we can never replace it. If there's one thing that uh, overnight radio is great for, it's uh, providing a forum for all points of view, all thoughts, even uh, some thoughts that may sound a little a little tin hatish from time to time. Uh, General Thomas McInerney, author of the book America's Endgame for the 21st Century. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, 
That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, a couple things here. One, um, you know, some of you might have heard a last uh, last yesterday, 24 hours ago, right around this time, we had a hypnotist, John Serbone, in studio, and it was really fun. At least I found it fun, and he did a lot of cool things, including people having the people that he hypnotized, who were friends of mine, who were not in on the gag at all. He never met them before. Do the news and traffic in an alien language. On the count of three, on the count of three only, on the count of three, on the count of three only. You're on this radio station. On the count of three, you're going to sit up in that chair, and as I go by, you're going to read the news and traffic in an alien language. On the count of three, it might be something like Star Trek's Klingon. It might be some other language from Star Wars or some other movie you've seen. It could be something you've made up. It might be Martian or Moon language. I don't know. On the count of three, if I tap you on the shoulder, read the news and the traffic in whatever language you can do. If I ask you to translate it into English, you'll be able to do it. I'm going to grab you one at a time, sitting up in that chair, getting ready to read the news. Hair out of your face. Go. Read the news. Register, register, goose, and... <laughs> go ahead. You're doing great. New York. Freeze. What does that mean? This is the news, and there's cars all over New York. Back to the language. Go. Uh, Sleep all the way down, drifting, floating, dreaming, staying safe in the sea. <laughs> Sitting up, up, up in the chair. Give me the language. alien language. Read the news, traffic, and weather. Go. And tapping you on the head, it means what? It was uh, not that cold out today, but I still wore a jacket, and there is cars outside, just like she said. Okay, she's got a whole. Let, let me jump in here. I, I will just say, so a few people in the Facebook community, they thought that it was a little too visual of a segment for radio, and maybe they're right. But you know what? We do on the show. We're always experimenting. So what I've done is I have posted the video to Facebook. You can see the video of this whole thing. Uh, two very cute girls there. Um, Steve Grillo from the old Howard Stern show and my friend Rich. All there right after my interview with John Serbone. The entire video. And uh, it does. You could see all the gestures everybody's doing and how they kind of collapse like a sack of potatoes when they go to sleep. It's really interesting. So if you want to watch the video, you can go to Facebook.com slash Fan. I just posted it on there right before the show. Now. We've been talking a lot about, uh, uh, so that's Facebook.com slash Morano Fan, Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O Fan. We've been talking a lot about Kanye West. So uh, as I was leaving yesterday, uh, Sid Rosenberg, who hosts the morning show on WABC, and the guys that are on his crew, they're editing some audio 
from a recent podcast that Kanye West did with this guy, Tim Poole. Oh, right before this, I got to tell you, right before this, Sid's going on and on about how someone, I don't remember who, it's not someone we work with, I just don't remember who, how someone who's like a no-talent hack, I don't remember who, honestly, uh, otherwise I would tell you, how they make all sorts of money, much more money than I make. And my attitude was, I don't care. Let them make millions of dollars. Let them make tens of millions of dollars. As long as I could pay my bills, which I can do occasionally, I don't care what anybody else makes. God bless them. That's my attitude. And so then they're editing this audio that they subsequently played on their show of Kanye West on uh, with this uh, podcast, Tim Pool. But I, when, the thing is, when I said my children, the reason why my my brain kind of blocked, because it's like God is saying, you know, your, your children are going to be OK. The, you know, baby mama's got money. Right. God is using me. He's breaking me down, removing all of the, you know, richest person, all of this so I can serve him. And the more and more of those things are taken away from me, the more I can be empty and be a vessel and be able to be used. And right now it's like you're not going to take if, – if we can't – you're not going to take my pain away, right? The Jewish people say it's the Holocaust, this happened, and you can't say anything about it. We can't take their pain away. No one's going to denounce the fact that they tried to lock me up. That's what – because every time I'm just holding stride and it's like – I didn't. I thought I was more Malcolm X, but I find out I'm more MLK because as I'm getting hosed down every day by the press and financially, I'm just standing there. And when when I found out that they tried to put me in jail, it was like a dog was biting my arm, and I I I, I almost shed a tear, almost. But I still walked in stride through it. So anyway, then they get into this whole argument about who they are. And, of course, in Kanye West's view, they're the Jews. And Kanye West storms out of this podcast. Now, Sid and I are watching this as it's being edited. And this guy, Tim Poole, is not a very interesting person at all. I said, oh, I never heard of that guy. Who is he? I look him up. He's got like 1.6 million Twitter followers. The guy's one of the biggest stars on the Internet and on social media. So... That did bother me. So I'm asking you, help me get more Twitter followers than Tim Pool, And follow me on Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Coming up, we're going to get an update on these uh, protests in China. I have to tell you, uh, I I think these protests in China is potentially one of the most exciting things I've seen in the world stage in quite some time. Uh, I think since maybe the dawn of the five-star movement and possibly even, I think this has the potential to be even bigger than the Arab Spring. Maybe I'm being naive, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but we're going to talk in about 20 minutes with uh, Prashant Rao, who is the uh, senior editor for Semaphore, and uh, he's going to join us live from London. But Semaphore, which is a relatively new media outlet, 
has been doing a great job covering these protests in China. Uh, Semaphore, by the way, I think got got its start at least in part with some seed funding from the crypto people, the guy that people are calling the crypto con man, Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm not going to ask that. uh, I'm not going to talk to Prashant Rao about that because that's not really his department. But we are going to talk about this situation going on in China because I think it's really interesting. Here's another thing that I think is interesting. Many followers of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, which if you're not familiar with, is, uh, as I understand it, it's a religion dedicated to the um, worship of Jane Jetson from the Jetsons. They are trying to reclaim and rehabilitate a thousand-year-old, maybe more, it could be several thousand, yes, actually it is, a multi-millennia old sacred religious symbol which represents peace and good fortune. And they're joined as well by some American Indians for whom the same symbol, an equilateral cross with its legs bent at right angles, is also sacred. Here's the problem. A somewhat similar but distinctly different insignia was co-opted by Adolf Hitler for the Third Reich and the Nazi regime. As a result, this hooked cross, uh, I think it's called a Hakenkreuz, the hooked cross evokes the trauma of the Holocaust and the horrors of Nazi Germany. Moreover, that hated hooked cross insignia has now been adopted by many white supremacist groups and a lot of neo-Nazi groups and vandals as a symbol of uh, their discredited beliefs in Nazism and things like that. So a religious symbol, which has been found in the Roman catacombs, I've seen it there actually, ruins in places like Greece, in places like Iran, in Ethiopian and Spanish churches, and in India today on shop doors, vehicles, food packaging, festivals or special occasions. And by the way, even on the doors of Jewish temples alongside the six-pointed Jewish star has in all too many occasions been subjected to scorn, and those displaying it, even for religious reasons, have been punished. So before I tell you what happened at George Washington University, I'd love your advice for the Hindus, the Buddhists, and the Jainists. How do you reclaim a symbol like the swastika? Now I want to emphasize the symbol they do look similar. It's it's a you know it's a cross with bent that's bent with bent legs. The Nazi symbol, the Nazi swastika is different. It is a little different. It's kind of backwards. It's a little side. It's it's different, but it's very similar. How do you reclaim a uh, a symbol that for thousands of years has stood for peace and spirituality and good fortune when it's been so corrupted by the Nazis? If you're giving advice to the Hindus and the Buddhists, what would you do? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. So let me tell you about this recent institu- incident at George Washington University. This is pretty remarkable. George Washington University banned this religious symbol, this Indian symbol. 
from campus because it might be mistaken for the Nazi insignia. Understand what happened here. They knew it was not the Nazi insignia. They knew that it was the Indian Hindu Jainist uh, ancient religious symbol. They knew this. And they banned it anyway because it could be misunderstood to be the Nazi insignia. So George Washington University actually suspended and almost permanently expelled a very religious Jewish student who was a member of an on-campus Jewish fraternity because he had posted for comment the religious symbol that he had brought back from India on a recent trip, and it was briefly mistaken by another student for a Nazi swastika. And uh, Professor John Bonzoff, who's been on this show, who's one of the brightest legal minds and one of the most creative legal minds in the entire country, he's a retired law professor at George Washington University, he said that this was as stupid as trying to ban the Jewish six-pointed star from GWU's campus because someone might possibly mistake it for a five-pointed pentagram, which is often associated with witches, witchcraft, devil worship, and the like. And I think he's exactly right. There's no reason that this student should have been suspended. And according to Bonzov, he, he said, trying, can you imagine trying to ban any display by a student of the Jewish star, which many students wear around the neck like the Christian cross, at a campus which is over 30% Jewish. Subsequently, after Bonzoff uh, made these comments, there was uh, threats of legal action for illegal religious discrimination. There was widespread condemnation from several major religious organizations and their spokespeople, including a former rabbi at GWU, uh, the guy that was the on-campus rabbi at GWU. This was very critical. And uh, there was very critical coverage all over the place, some satirical reports in a whole bunch of media outlets, both here and in India, and an appeal to the alumni in Forbes, Forbes magazine, to withhold contributions. With all of this, GWU finally backed down on its threat to effectively prohibit any display of this ancient religious symbol by banning any student from wearing or even briefly showing it to another. So this was a victory for free speech. This Jewish student, he wanted to teach other residents about the cultural heritage of the swastika as a symbol for good luck. Uh, And apparently the next student that tries to do that will not be suspended. So they backed down. And the suspension, which caused this student a great deal of distress, For example, he was unable to complete and get credit for one semester of academic work. That's very real. It's a very real punishment for a college student. Um, He was forced to move off campus and was not permitted to attend religious services with the others in his Jewish fraternity. And he had to hire a, uh, a lawyer that was pretty expensive to help prevent him being expelled. This represented a clear violation of both religious freedom and freedom of speech and, I think, academic freedom, such as it exists on college, which GWU guarantees freedom of speech and religious freedom to all of its students in a binding legal document. But this didn't prevent George Washington University from, in my opinion, 
grossly overreacting to something which was legally protected. And as any scholar of free speech will tell you, display of even the most hated and inflammatory symbols, things like a Nazi swastika, a burning cross, fortunately or unfortunately, that is fully protected as free speech. The Associated Press uh, quoted those who oppose this rehabilitation of this religious symbol as arguing that, quote, Holocaust survivors in particular could be re-traumatized when they see this symbol. So my first question for you is, what do you think of this? How GW handled this? I think they handled it very poorly. Uh, Two, if you were giving advice, you're now in charge of marketing for this ancient religious symbol. What would you suggest to the Hindus and the others about how they can, I don't know, take away some of the stigma of this symbol that was caused by the Nazis. 800-848-9222, because it's clear they have a lot of work to do. And Bonzoff himself said that. If a top-ranked university like George Washington can not only mistake a millennia-old sacred religious symbol for a Nazi swastika and suspend and come very close to expelling a student for briefly displaying it, those that are seeking to reclaim and rehabilitate This as an important symbol in their religions clearly have their work cut out for them. Curious what what you would advise them. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with the uh, original Rick in New Jersey. Hello, original Rick. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. 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 Yeah, yeah, this this brought back memories because uh, my grandfather lived in Wyoming and Utah during the 20s and 30s. And, uh, you know, intertwined with the American Indian community he had one of those blankets that had that symbol and right after pearl harbor my grandmother missed unthinkingly hung it up on the clothesline after she washed it and the fbi showed up and detained them and and basically we're going to arrest them until whoa really yeah 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 so this has been going isn't that the surface cross thing too uh i'm not familiar with the surface cross yeah, I because I, I used to see the surface cross, and I could say, "Wait a minute, that's a that's a swastika." I think they maybe not, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. No, I'm wrong. I'm wrong on that. But my grandfather, it was, and they they had to show him that it was reversed. It's it's a it's kind of a, a reversed swastika. Swastika. The uh, the, the uh, things are bent at the opposite direction than the swastika. So when you reverse the blanket, it looks like a swastika. I see. I see. Yes, I do. Um, I appreciate you sharing that, Rick. Uh, did what did they do for the re- after that FBI visit and for the rest of the of the war and so forth? And after the war, did they keep that blanket around? Did they use it or did I, they know, I, squirrel I, it away? Yeah, I, never, I never heard what they did with it or not, but I'm sure they they didn't display it as prominently. They probably kept it, but they didn't. You know, they were more careful about. What they did with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Rick. Appreciate it. 800 848 Marianne is in Queens. Hello, Marianne. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Yes. Uh, I have, um, I don't know, I'm a skeptical of what there are, the hysteria about the Nazis. Why, if they are so adamant to go and pro-Israel um, against Nazis, why they don't do something about the neo-Nazis that are all over Europe? NATO is, you know, doing what they're doing. They're sending these guys to fight against 
Putin. Uh, and you you, you lost me, Marion. You lost me. Uh, the the use of they uh, kind of threw me in your well, analysis. I'm talking about the FBI. They know where they are here. All right. Well, so, did you have a comment there. about the the rehabilitation of this sacred religious uh, symbol? Yes, I believe that they are actually uh, violating the civil rights, educational rights, and religious rights of these people. Okay, and um, what would you do in terms of if you were trying to popularize this symbol, which is very symbol, similar to the Nazi insignia, how would you recommend that groups that want to use this symbol and embrace it and display it, uh, how they do that, and how can they take it back? Well, I believe that they have to get together, get the community that embrace it, and protest. I believe that the only way if the people go and protest against the government, because they are the ones that are doing those rules, so if they, you know, if they don't say anything, they will do even more. One day we're not going to have any religious rights or anything. All right. They're taking away everything from us. Well, thank you very much, Marianne. You know, we have seen different uh, slurs or pejorative words uh, that have been reclaimed, right? I mean, I, the best example in my view is uh, is queer. You know, queer used to be a very... Uh, used to be a slur, and now it is not. It is something that the gay community has embraced. Another one, believe it or not, was cop. It used to be kind of an insulting thing to call someone a cop. That you that was kind of a slang term for a police officer. It was considered kind of disrespectful. You've seen other words kind of used with uh, some success and some taken back with other success. There's some other words uh, that people have tried to take back and not been successful. One word I think is is the N-word. I, I think that's still very much a dynamite word that you can't use in polite company no matter how many uh, Kanye West-style rappers try to make its use okay again. But queer, absolutely. It has been reclaimed by academics and activists and uh, there are a number of other words that fit that description as well. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Good morning, Frank. How are you, my friend? Hanging in Frank, there, thanks. The where is the ACLU on this? Um, they, did they have any? Did they have any involvement? Were they there to uh, advise this this young man who is getting again just like like a lot of these institutions now are just so afraid so afraid to take a stand that they punish, they re-victimize the victim. Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know, to be honest. I, I, I'm not, I hadn't heard about any of uh, any ACLU involvement, but that doesn't mean there, there wasn't any. It just means I don't know about it. Sure. But you I'm remember, sorry, it was I'm the ACLU. Holding, I'm not holding you to be the authority. Yeah, but it was, and, and I'm not looking to defend the ACLU, especially these days, but yeah. it was the ACLU that defended free speech in 1978 by defending that neo-Nazi group that wanted to march through Skokie. So they do have some history of standing up for hate groups. Right. They also had to offer at one point, although I don't think it was uh, taken by him, but Donald Trump, they had to offer him the option of assistance as well for one of his legal battles. They're supposed to be a civil, a blind a blind loyalty and a blind type of protection yeah. or uh, advisement from them. And, and if I were these groups that are trying to promote this 
you know, ancient symbol of peace, the only way to really get your point across is to continue to jam it down their right. throat. Yeah. Like uh, a lot of these other organizations do to, you know, get their points across. Very, very interesting, JR. Thank you. I may post uh, this image on my Facebook page today at, um, you know, at Facebook.com slash Morano fan as part of this effort to reclaim this. And uh, I hope uh, nobody gives me a hard time and uh, says that I am uh, reclaiming Nazi propaganda or, you know, trying to promote Nazi propaganda because it's the farthest thing from it. But I, I also, the only thing that's stopping me is if people haven't heard this discussion and haven't heard the story and they think that I am um, trying to put out a, a Nazi insignia on there. So I'm going to give that some thought. 800-848-9222. But it is a shame to allow the Nazis and the Third Reich to corrupt a symbol that has been around for millennia. And so I, I don't think we should allow neo-Nazi groups and hate groups to do that. So, I mean, what if everybody did that? What if everybody took this uh, Indian, this Indian Hindu symbol and displayed it on social media. You remember how um, when the Ukrainian war started, thankfully this has gone away, thankfully. I mean, uh, no disrespect to the Ukrainians, but you remember how when the Ukrainian war started, everybody in the world changed their Facebook profile photo to the colors of the Ukrainian flag? You know, I, I would love to go up to those people and say, hey, what happened to that, by the way? The, the war's still going on. People are still dying. The Russians are still invading. They're still attacking the Ukrainians. Yeah, I don't see your Facebook photo uh, displayed with those uh, those blue and yellow colors anymore. What happened? Did, did all of a sudden the war less important? The New York Post, by the way, has kept that Ukrainian flag on its – it's driving me crazy. Uh, it, they, they choose to have two flags on the front page of that tabloid, the Ukrainian flag and the American flag. Heaven forbid it should just be the American flag. Got to throw the Ukrainians up there, too. Um, but anyway, the I think it would be nice, you know, because I got the symbolism after the terrorist attack in France, after the um, the Ukrainian war started. People wanted to show solidarity with people that were having a hard time. I don't think there's a better use of the imagery of social media than displaying this image on there. So I'm going to think about doing it. Um, tune in later today and see if uh, if we do that. Uh, it's uh, Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Let me say hello to Ed in St. James. Hello, Ed. Hello, sir. Thank you and your staff for taking my call. I want to tell you something. The um – just uh, uh, yesterday, NATO has agreed to keep sending, um, according to public radio, blankets and uh, uh, bandage wrappings and stuff to the Ukraine. So it's not like the war is over, okay? Uh, um, but, right. Um, going that, back, that's exactly going, my point. Is yet I don't. And again, not, I don't want to make. It's not over. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly my point, because all these people that were so gung ho with these Ukrainian flags on social media, you're not seeing that anymore, even though it's the same situation. Yeah. Well, probably because we don't share any uh, borders with them. Also, going back to the um, um, the George Washington. um, um, My my sister went to George Washington University and. uh, you know, there was a lot of flack, uh, the 30% uh, plus, um, and I'm not just talking about the uh, 
the the, the mis the misthought of uh, cross the, the with the bent uh, legs. Um, there's different items which don't really represent and are mistaken, like the onyx, which is the the um, the crucifix with the round circle on the top, and the um, the Christmas tree, which actually people don't like to say that term. They usually call it Xmas, is actually a symbol of the um, the winter solstice, and it's a pagan ritualism. So it doesn't represent anything that has to do with uh, Christianity. And with that, I'll leave. And thank you, sir, for taking my call. Thanks, Ed. 800-848-9222. I'm not sure the point of the Christmas tree reference. I mean, um, I, get, I think we know, if you read the Bible, there's not a lot of uh, references to Christmas trees in the New Testament. It's a tradition. Maybe it's more of a, a secular tradition than a religious one. Uh, I don't think people should take down their Christmas trees. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Rockland. Hello, Robert. Hi. How are you doing? I <clears throat> Good. I like the conversation about this, um, <clears throat> although I'm not feeling that well. I'm trying to explain it uh, with what's going on. I'll use an example of uh, the what, what happened at NYU when uh, the leader of Iran, Ajinazad, went there and he made that comment about, you know, stinking, rotten corpses and stuff like that. So <clears throat> the reason why we're horrified by it is because they're allowing it. But what they have this inner protected right in the college policies that usually people don't read. You know, you just read basically, you take it for granted. That's how they're able to get away with it legally, even though you think, oh, why is the dean of the college supporting it? This behavior is hate speech. And so what they what they can't support is physical violence. But anything considered, either it's something talking about hate speech or the president coming in and saying bad things about Jews, it's a protected experience. And that's how the colleges legally get away with it. So it's it's really uh, it's incredible. I, I I believe you are right about that. I don't think these things should go on. They create more problems. Uh, there was another example with another college where white students weren't allowed one day. Oh, it's, they're going to be um, discriminated the one day. So that, I think that was Michigan University. I'm not sure, but anyway, it's the same thing. They allow it in the policies, and uh, that's how they get away with it. Uh, just thought you might know that. All right. Thank you, uh, Robert. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, how's it going, Frank? Um, I think, I mean, if it's their ancient symbol and they want to try to take it back, I mean, I guess it, it depends on the area they're in. Like in some places, a lot people are going to notice immediately that it's it's not the swastika exactly. Oh, and in some other places. What's going you know, on over there, there, Eric? Oh, my cat. That's my cat. Oh. In other places, <laughs> in other places the cat, uh, people will. Um, they might think it's a swastika for a second, and then they're going to see it's not eventually. I guess they could put up flyers around wherever they're practicing their religion. You said it's, Hindu, it's a Hindu thing? Yeah, it's Hindu, it's Indian, it's American Indian. There's a lot of cultures that have used it. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, I saw a meme about that the other day, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> thank, thank you, Eric. You know, uh, again, I don't want people to think I'm being provocative for provocative sake, but I think I am going to post an image of this uh, Indian swastika on, uh, you know, uh, maybe even a few. Maybe I'll do one a day uh, for the next week or so. And, um, you know, just as my statement about reclaiming this. Um, so we'll see where that goes. That's kind of the direction I'm leaning at the moment. 800-848-9222. There's a whole website 
about this called ReclaimTheSwastika.com. ReclaimTheSwastika.com. Maybe I'll reach out to these guys and see if they want to come on the radio and, uh, and talk about this. We'll see. Hey, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about China. And the protests that are going on there, I find this incredibly exciting. And I'm very hopeful that these protesters that are protesting the zero COVID policy in China may be successful in getting getting the government to, I don't know, take their boot off the neck of their people a little bit. And who knows, maybe even foment the resignation of Xi Jinping, who they say is the most powerful Chinese premier since Mao Zedong. We'll see. We're going to talk about it with uh, Prashant Rao from Semaphore in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Sixty-seven years old. Happy birthday, Billy Idol. And I'll tell you what I like about Billy Idol. I've never met him in person, but I like two things about him. One, unlike a lot of people that uh, are, you know, big famous rock stars or people that have gained a lot of critical acclaim over the years, he's only five foot nine. I think I'm five foot eight. So I feel like I wouldn't have to look up to Billy Idol. Like I'm almost at eye level with Billy Idol, which I like. Also, Billy Idol seems like he has a little bit of a uh, sense of humor. I don't know if you remember, about uh, two, three years ago, they started, uh, he and Mayor de Blasio started this Don't Idol campaign. And I thought, I I was really impressed with that. I gave him a lot of credit for being willing to play on the uh, pun of his name. And this particular song has an added resonance because of the people that are yelling in China. They are very unhappy with the Chinese government's zero COVID policy, which is essentially a pretty broad lockdown, which as soon as COVID rears its head in China, they uh, take steps to lock everything down. It's had a devastating effect on the economy in China, at least certain parts of China, and people are just not happy about it. Here are some of the anti-lockdown protesters in China. Over the last week or so, these protests have erupted in China. This is almost unprecedented in modern China. These protests are erupting in major cities and major universities across the country and being shared on social media platforms like TikTok, which is an unusual sign of unbridled public anger 
towards the Chinese government. Demonstrations happened over the weekend in China's largest city, Beijing, 21.5 million people. Shanghai, 26.3 million people. Wuhan, 11 million people. And the protests appear to have started in one uh, city last Friday after a deadly fire broke out in an apartment complex in an area where residents have been under lockdown for more than 100 days. Can you blame them? So um, one of the media outlets that I think has been doing a great job chronicling not only what's happening in China, but putting it in a broader international context, is a relatively new media outlet called Semaphore. Uh, Very pleased to have a senior editor for Semaphore joining us live from London, Prashant Rayo. Uh, Prashant, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, So did these protests all start with the COVID zero lockdown policy in China? Yeah, I think that's the sort of you, you outlined it well in your sort of introduction. And this is sort of the core frustration, though, obviously, in China, there's um, many others that come to the come to the fore over time. But that, that's certainly sort of at the heart of what's happening now. Help uh, our listeners understand exactly what the policy is in China. We all experience some version of a lockdown, especially in cities like New York, but almost every place in America at the at the height of the covid pandemic. You couldn't go to work. You couldn't gather, couldn't have uh, people over for Thanksgiving with uh, entities of 10 or more. Is uh, is what's going on in China the same thing or is it a little worse? Yeah, I would. I think it's conceptually the same, but we have to sort of really differentiate between orders of magnitude. So I'm in London. And um, similarly, you know, in the early weeks of the pandemic, we had uh, what we described as a lockdown here. Um, But what was happening in China is just so much bigger in the sense of, um, you know, if you were traveling currently right now as well, um, and for most of the period since the pandemic began, uh, traveling in and out of China requires a multi-week quarantine process. Um, and so, you know, I went to Hong Kong in October 2020, and I had to stay in a hotel room by myself for two weeks um, before I was allowed out again. Um, you know, there was, con- that has since become even, uh, that for a period, sorry, became even more stringent with uh, multiple uh, rapid tests while you're in the hotel room to make sure you haven't contracted COVID. Um, and the same is true on the mainland in certain places and for certain periods, far more intense. Traveling within, you know, within the country has similar restrictions. Um, several small businesses were forced to shut. Uh, you know, just the, the level of lockdown, I think, while conceptually it is the same, is far, far more intense. The, the sort of definition of what a close contact is, is also far more intense. Um, I think one of the issues in China has been, you know, in certain cases, people in your building, your apartment block are regarded as close contact. So mm. if somebody in your apartment block has uh, COVID, the entire apartment block gets shut down. Um, and then you are subjected to multi-week shutdowns. You're not allowed to go out for food or water that that's delivered to you, though there's also been complaints that it's been insufficient or poor quality. So really, you know, once you start peeling away at the kind of extent of it, it's really astonishing um, having to live through the the sort of extent of the restrictions that they have for as long as they have. What form have these demonstrations taken? I mean, when we say people are protesting, what are these folks actually doing to protest? So, yeah, I think it's important to put in context. We There aren't – it's really hard to verify and understand how large and expansive these protests are. You know, for one, you know, censorship in, in China is very 
very good um, from a from the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party. They are able to take down a lot of these videos and uh, protest symbols very quickly. Um, and also, you know, you, you did say uh, you know, Shanghai is a city of 26 million people, and we we think maybe a few hundred to possibly possibly more than a thousand protested. So it's still you know hard to tell how expansive and how extensive these protests are. Um, in terms of what they've been doing, uh, it's been a variety of different things uh, on some university campuses and in sort of public areas of Beijing, Shanghai, Wuhan. Uh, they've been holding up blank pieces of paper, uh, which sort of symbolize their inability to speak out. Um, others have been, you know, there's been some really creative protests to avoid censorship. A lot of um, people on Chinese social media have been posting uh, you know, the sort of trope is you can't criticize the party or the or the state. And so several people have just been posting the Chinese word for good uh, multiple times. Hmm. Uh, so good, 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 as if to so parodying and um, the sort of the censorship regime. Um, others have been sort of um, posting, there's one sort of uh, relatively uh, internet popular protest, though I don't know how sort of actual on the street popular it's been, of uh, posting um, a mathematical equation called the Freeman equation uh, because of the pun of free man. Um, it's been really kind of fascinating to watch, though, again, I would really stress it's, you know, this is an enormous, enormous country, um, and the number of people protesting has not been commensurately enormous with the size, though it has, you were right to say, still been remarkable given the extent of control the party state has in China. Uh, if people just tune in, we're, to, we're talking with uh, Prashant Rao. He is joining us live from London. He's a senior editor with Semaphore, which has been doing a great job covering these protests. It's no secret that the Chinese government for the last 75 years or so has been doing all sorts of things that clamp down on people's freedoms. Obviously, for decades, they had in place this one-child policy. You can go to different cities and you could see uh, child labor that would make any American cringe. There's all sorts of uh, problems with rampant pollution. There's all sorts of problems with sanitation. It's not unusual to walk around some places in China and just see people defecating right in the middle of the street. There is very strict regulation of religious freedom. Uh, You mentioned the incredible censorship that goes on in China. There's a lot to be upset about if you're a Chinese citizen. Why is this different? Why has this um, degree of clampdown by the government resulted in protests, in, in mass protests such as they are, whereas a lot of the other things that the Chinese government has done to their own people haven't necessarily resulted in these same protests? I think it's important to sort of think about where China was 70, 75 years ago, as you say, uh, you know, it's an incredibly poor country, uh, incredibly uh, cut off from society, uh, from global society. And I think one of the reasonable things we can say is that, you know, the Chinese uh, state and the party since, you know, the 1970s and 1980s, as it's opened up, has delivered possibly the most, you know, I think economists would largely agree, the most successful anti-poverty campaign in human history. Hundreds of millions of people have become wealthier, healthier, um, more able to travel, live their lives. I think it's easy from afar um, to think that sort of uh, China is just a totalitarian kind of place where you can't do anything um, all the time. And in fact, you know, I lived and worked in China for a period and I lived in Hong Kong for a long time. Hong Kong, obviously a very different city. Uh, But on the mainland, there is a there was for a long time a degree of economic freedom and an ability to move around, to move around the country, to travel abroad, to you know set up small businesses and have them grow, to you know purchase property and see your family and 
uh, migrate within the country to bigger cities or all of these kinds of things that, you know, regular people want. And China was able to provide from an economic point of view, even as politics was heavily curtailed. And I think what's one of the significant changes in the last two or three years is so much of that has been taken away. Mm. Um, you know, you talked about how the Chinese economic growth has really flatlined. Um, for a long period, you know, the, the trope was that um, to the Chinese Communist Party had the bicycle theory of uh, political political economy, which is, you know, you have to keep moving forward, otherwise you're going to fall off. Um, and so to some degree, that is that is manifesting itself. Um, Chinese economic growth has slowed substantially from three, four years ago, um, largely due to these lockdowns. Uh, supply chains have ground to a halt. Um, and so, and, and, you know, the kind of the daily quotidian freedoms that people had to, you know, go out to dinner, to sort of see their friends and go to movies. That's been sort of a particular, you know, one of the sort of smaller protests that's been going on is people just shouting, I want to go to watch a movie. Um, and that's been taken away. All of these sort of smaller daily freedoms have been snatched away through the pandemic. Um, and of course, all of us suffered through that for a period, but this has just been going on for so long now. And I think it's really hard to, um, I think watching that video that you sort of spoke about of the fire in Urumqi, um, in which 10 people are reported to have died and, you know, firefighters apparently couldn't get to the building because of COVID restrictions in the area, that has really resonated. This idea that, you know, that could be anybody. Um, apartment blocks get shut down all the time. And if a fire broke out um, and a fire engine couldn't get to your home, what would happen to you? And that, I think, has been, that has been the spark, but it's kind of spoken to the the everyman quality of this pandemic, which is everyone suffers in China equally um, in a way that hasn't normally been true of prior um, prior restrictions imposed by the party. One of the you alluded to the uh, Hong Kong protests, which also got a lot of attention two years ago. As it stands now, do we know what's going on in Hong Kong about any protests specifically targeting the zero covid policy? What's happening in Hong Kong now? So Hong Kong has actually opened up a little more. One of the, you know, there are obviously many differences between Hong Kong and the mainland. Um, Hong Kong actually uh, has some mRNA vaccines, um, whereas the mainland doesn't. Uh, you know, vaccine efficacy is higher there. Uh, vaccine take up has been higher. Um, but in terms of protests, there have been some small protests with regards, you know, sort of um, in support of the mainland protests. Um, but they've been relatively uh, restricted in 2020. Um uh, the party imposed a national security law on Hong Kong, which makes mm. it incredibly dangerous to protest, to speak out, um, to, you know, newspapers, several several pro-democracy papers have either shut or been heavily, heavily curtailed in their coverage. Um, the, the courts have um, very much shifted away from the independence-minded um, sort of uh, independent judiciary that used to exist in Hong Kong. And so what Hong Kong has, uh, in, in many ways, actually from a purely sort of on paper legal system, become a more draconian place than, than the mainland because of this national security hmm. law, which it, is retroactive. It is extra extraterritorial. It's extremely, extremely restrictive. Um, by the way, just fill us in because you alluded to the differences on the mRNA vaccine in Hong Kong versus mainland China. In mainland China, what's the story there in terms of vaccines? What sort of vaccines do they have access to right now? And if the government has no problem telling them what to do, why is the government not simply mandating getting whatever vaccine they have available? I mean, this is one of the real mysteries of this pandemic. You know, I think um, 
China isn't entirely a black box, um, but it is an incredibly opaque society. And one of the things I think that is really hard to understand is why there has not been a broader vaccine mandate. One of the things that has happened since this since these protests broke out has been that the government has said um, and the authorities have said they will start to um, promote vaccines more. Uh, China. Uh, elderly people in China are vaccinated and boosted at a much lower rate than Americans, than Germans, than than the Japanese. Um, China's uh, domestically made vaccines, which are the only ones available, are efficacious. They are, you know, good at preventing death and serious illness. They're not as good at preventing um, sort of uh, infection, uh, but you know, they they do the important thing. And um, but just not enough people have them. And um, and then combined with the fact that they are not as efficacious, that means that. One of the real fears of this is, you know, we can talk about the politics of zero COVID, but actually the healthcare infrastructure is almost just as important in China. Um, so you have a less vaccinated um, society with a less, epic, you know, a, a less sort of good vaccine for lack of a better, you know, um, for, uh, a vaccine that's not as good as an mRNA vaccine. Uh, but also, you know, Chinese hospitals have fewer ICU unit, units, they have fewer nurses, they have fewer hospital beds than the United States, than Europe, than Japan, than Korea, than Taiwan. And there is a real fear among sort of Chinese healthcare analysts that if you were to open up, um, there would just, you know, in, in the post-Omicron world, there would just be a rise in infections. Mm. And it's not clear that the Chinese healthcare system can handle what may come. Mm. Um, what role are ads for escort services playing here? Uh, I've seen some coverage of that, and a lot of people have asked me about it. And uh, when I can't explain it effectively, I know it's time for me to ask someone else. What is going on? <laughs> So um, in, in the sort of days since the protests broke out on Twitter in particular, searching for Chinese cities uh, led to a flood of ads for escort services, um, which appears to have been a, a sort of misinformation play by you know, the argument goes, though I don't think it's been fully independently verified um, that this is the Chinese state trying to flood the zone with um, with misinformation to uh, cloud what is actually happening Um I think in the past few weeks, um, some of these controls on Twitter seem to have been relaxed and it's a little easier to get these through the system um, and they haven't been taken down as quickly. I think, you know, the the Chinese state has um, and the party was has, you know, long been um, very good at um, walling off the Chinese Internet and using the Western Internet um, it, it, on its terms. Um, and this is the first time in which it seems like, some, at least in the early days, the extent of the protests surprised them. And the Chinese internet was not as well censored. And the Western internet seemed to be much more interested in China. And so I think there's been some response, the misinformation potentially, you know, again, it hasn't been verified um, as far as I can tell. But that seems to be the general assessment of sort of independent experts that this seems to be what's happening. Could this be uh, the if not the start of, the continuation of a new sort of Asian spring? Is there a possibility that these protests could actually lead to a significant easing of this COVID restriction policy and or a resignation for Xi Jinping? I would really separate those two issues, Mm -hmm. um, the politics and the zero COVID. Um, One, you know, we've started to see already the the authorities in China have relaxed in some cases, some of these COVID restrictions, Um, not to the extent that, you know, this is like New York or London by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, you know, uh, the kind of definition of close contacts in some areas has been relaxed. The kind of testing requirement has been relaxed. Some quarantine regimes have been lowered and they're trying to promote vaccination. Um, so there is some extent of, you know, opening up, though you should, we shouldn't overstate that because it's still a heavily curtailed society mm-hmm. from the COVID point of view. 
Now, from a politics point of view, I would I would be very reticent to say so. Uh, I think you know this is Xi Jinping just won a sort of third term in power um, at the sort of Communist Party Congress a few weeks ago. It you know he has over time um, tightened his grip on power. This is not a sort of situation that I would see that you know suddenly um, things will rise up again. I think. It's it's worth being circumspect about the extent of these protests. They are, of course, remarkable because China sees so few of them and they're, they're coordinated on the same issue. But, you know, this is a huge country and this is not as many people as we would think proportionately. Plus, you know, the, China invests a lot in surveillance, in public security, in police. Um, we've already begun to see a be- the beginnings of a crackdown. The fact that these protests over the weekend have not been replicated in large measure in the days since. Um, there have been arrests. There are reports on, you know, credible news sources like Reuters and Bloomberg uh, and the Wall Street Journal that um, these sort of public security apparatus is beginning to look out for people who were at these protests to arrest them. This is, you know, one of the functions of the vast surveillance state that's been constructed in China. Um, and so I, I would be at least a little sort of um, wary of making that extent of a prediction uh, politically. Uh, last question, Prashan, and I have actually pages worth of questions, so I hope you'll come back soon because uh, I could talk with you for hours, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time this morning. Uh, there's been some criticism of Apple because folks have said that Apple has restricted the airdrop function that some of these Chinese protesters have used. Set us straight on that, if you can. What exactly has Apple done, if you're aware? So the the sort of um, allegation appears to be that uh, airdrop has been restricted to the number of people and for the period of time in China. Apple's in a very difficult position in China. I, I don't mean to justify it, just to explain it. Um, you know, a- Apple's... Uh, Basically, everyone who has an iPhone, the likelihood is that iPhone was built at a facility in Zhengzhou in central China. Um, Apple has invested huge amounts of its infrastructure and supply chain to build its products in China. Um, similarly to Tesla, actually, um, and several other American kind of companies, they are very tied into the Chinese economy and the Chinese supply chain. And um, Apple at this point, I, I don't mean to conflate that this is why they've done it, I just as, as meaning of, as providing some context. Um, there is a one, it's a huge domestic market for Apple, but also it's a huge supply area. And Apple has, you know, long come in for criticism for its ties to China and its reliance on China. Now, in the past for a few months and years, it has been diversifying its supply chain. You know, I think um, activists would argue not enough. Uh, economists would probably, you know, sorry, business analysts would also probably say not enough. Um, there are more and more iPhone parts and AirPods that are being built in India and Vietnam. Um, but uh, Apple, Tesla, several American companies are hugely reliant on China, um, both as a market, but also as a uh, sort of hub for building their products. Uh, Prashant, I actually have to end it there. I appreciate the time this morning. I hope we could talk again soon. Thank you very much. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. To Mexico, ZZ Top. Uh, I am heading down to Mexico on Friday for my brother-in-law Adam's 
wedding. Uh, he is marrying a very nice woman uh, named Brittany, and uh, they've been together a long time. Actually, uh, they are together longer than my wife and I are together. I met uh, I, when I started courting my wife. Adam was already in a relationship with Brittany, and she's uh, she's wonderful, and he's like a he seems like a great guy as well. So uh, excited to be down there for that. Hate to be away from you, but um, who knows? Mexico just may give you a clue. As to one of the questions, or maybe even multiple questions, in next hour's edition of the $1,000 Minute. You never know. It could be a clue. But, um, Curtis Lee will be here on Friday and Monday, and then I'll be back on Tuesday morning. I'm not sure if we're going to do Ask Frank anything tomorrow, which is what we did last week. But uh, I hate to make a Friday tradition to Thursday-ish, so we'll see. Uh, if you want to write me and give me your opinion, you're welcome to do so. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. I have to tell you, I saw a phenomenal documentary. It took me two, two parts. I watched it over time. It's called um, The Perfect Bid, Perfect Bid, The Contestant Who Knew Too Much. And it was on Netflix, and I watched, you know, I'm, trying, I'm biking more, so I did 10 miles yesterday, and I was able to finish this, uh, this documentary. And it's on Netflix. It's great. And it's all about, it's a profile, it's all about The Price is Right. And I said, all right, you know, I remember reading about this story five years ago, uh, four years ago. I would have seen this documentary right away had I known this was going to be this good. I figured, all right, I'll put it on my list. I like Bob Barker. I like uh, The Price is Right. Uh, It was an interesting story. I don't want to tell you about it because you should go in cold. But it profiles Ted Slauson, an elementary school math teacher and super fan of The Price is Right, and about how he became fascinated with the show and what that has led to. Let me play you a little bit of the trailer. And I still have all of my name tags and contestant cards from all the tapings I've been to. Pretty sure it was 37 altogether. So one week I got into like watching Price's Rights from like 1973. The same refrigerator freezer was on four different episodes that I watched and it was $789 all four times. I'm like, well, see there it is, there's proof. So that kind of inspired me to start tracking prices or keeping the records. It's just sad that people don't know the whole story. It's phenomenal. It is so good, it's so interesting, and it's short. It's only 72 minutes. It's great. If you're into game shows or math or gambling or just like interesting stories about people that become obsessed with something, check it out. It's called Perfect Bid. It's on Netflix. Your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. 
I'm Frank Moreno. Um, in a minute, I'm going to tell you about a story that I can really relate to, and I suspect many of you can as well, especially if you're like me and you just despise everything about the air flying process. I did not fly for 11 years. 11 years. And then I had to do I had to take a flight for work. And then I think I flew again on uh, I think I went on vacation with my then girlfriend now wife 4 years after that. And then uh you know I've flown more frequently since then because I've had a need to fly. But I I just I dislike flying. I I thought that there was going to be a time where I was going to go the rest of my life without flying. I'm not afraid of flying. I just don't like it. So um, I'm going to tell you about a story that I found really interesting in a moment. But first, the other side of midnight proudly presents breaking news. Speaking of China, I don't know how we don't mention this. Just receiving word a few minutes ago that a former Chinese leader, Zhang Zemin, who presided over some more market-oriented changes that turned that nation, China, into an economic juggernaut has died at the age of 96. I'm guessing a lot of you probably remember his tenure as the head of China. He was the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party uh, from 1989 to 2002 and the uh, chairman of the Central Military Commission until 2004, and he was the president of China from 1993 to 2003. But in the days before Xi Jinping, uh, they would limit everybody to 10 years, but they've done away with all those restrictions for Xi Jinping. So he has passed away at the age of 96. You know, just wanted to tell you about it. All right. Meantime, do you remember Odell Beckham Jr., the football player? It doesn't matter if you do it or, not, or don't. I mean, he played for the Giants a while. Uh, he's a free agent now. I think he was recovering from an injury. But he's with the Giants up until, I think, 2018, 2019. Played, you know, three or four, maybe, I want to say five seasons with the Giants. And uh, he's played with the Browns, played with the Rams. Good player. Wide receiver, if I remember correctly. And um, he, I think this week, is going to be able to start negotiating with teams again and sign with a team. I'd love to see the Giants get him back. I mean, I know he brings with him a lot of drama, as you'll see in a moment. But um, going into the playoffs, I'd love to see Odell Beckham Jr. come back. Police escorted... Football star Odell Beckham Jr. off an American Airlines flight on Sunday morning in Florida after crew members who tried to wake him up before departure grew concerned because he, quote, appeared to be coming in and out of consciousness. Beckham, a Super Bowl-winning wide receiver, is supposed to start meeting with teams on Thursday. He played for the Rams most recently. Here's apparently what occurred. Miami-Dade police responded to American Airlines flight 1228 in Miami, bound for Los Angeles at around 930 in the morning after flight attendants called for help out of fear that Beckham was ill and his condition would worsen through the expected five-hour flight. That's the word from the police. Upon the officer's arrival, the flight crew asked Beckham several times to exit the aircraft, which he refused, according to the police. The aircraft was deplaned. Can you imagine being on this plane? This is what's going to happen to me. 
because, something that you didn't do. You're just a regular, ordinary guy trying to go from Miami to L.A., and you're told you have to leave the plane because a football player is is falling asleep? The aircraft was deplaned, at which time Mr. Beckham was asked by the officers to exit the plane, and he did so without incident. He tweeted about this two days ago, quote, Never in my never in my life have I experienced what just happened to me. I've seen it all. So what happened? But here's the word from American Airlines. American Airlines said in a statement that the Los Angeles bound plane returned to the gate before takeoff due to a customer, customers Odell Beckham, failing to follow crew member instructions and refusing to fasten their seatbelt before it eventually departed at 10.54 in the the morning. This is the uh, audio of Odell Beckham Jr. leaving the plane. An attorney for Beckham said that he just fell asleep with a blanket over his head on, on the flight before it could take off. He was woken up. And told he would have to get off the plane because he did not put his seatbelt on when asked. He responded that he was asleep and that he would put his seatbelt on at that time. But according to the lawyer, he said that Beckham was then informed that it was too late and that either he would have to get off the plane or everyone would have to deplane. I mean, um, according to the lawyer, And who knows what reality is, right? At no time was Mr. Beckham's uh, was Mr. Beckham disruptive or combative. He was willing to comply with the seatbelt requirement. But the flight attendant wanted to prove that he had the authority to have Beckham removed from the flight, adding that the airline sent Beckham's luggage to Los Angeles without him. The incident was completely unnecessary Sleeping on a plane should not be a cause for removal from a flight. I so empathize with everybody here. So it's not clear to me if all of the other passengers on the plane had to uh, disembark. At least I I thought the way the article was read that they did because the way they used the term deplane. But maybe they didn't once he got off. But they did have to go back to the gate and uh, have their flight delayed. I empathize with the role of being the innocent passenger bystander here. I also empathize with Beckham because the one thing I always do on a, on a plane is sleep. I fall asleep from the – I'm not going to be able to Friday with, uh, with Carmine. But I fall asleep from the moment I sit in that plane. And it's – because I'm, I don't get really a lot of sleep during the week, I sleep basically the whole flight. Uh, I'll try and read a little bit, and then I'll go back to sleep. Like the Hawaii trip, it was a uh, you know it was twelve, ten or twelve hours, so I would sleep, 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 and especially because I was by myself on that flight, no one to talk to, and then I would read. I think I might have watched a movie because it's such a long flight, and then I went back to sleep. The, when I went to Italy, same thing. I am a sleeper, but now what I do is because I don't want a flight attendant talking to me and disrupting my sleep. As soon as I sit in that chair, I am buckling that safety belt. Because I don't want to get woken up. So, but haven't we all seen flight attendants or 
just people in general that seem really eager to flex their muscle and show their power around. I mean, you see it in the workplace, right? Now, you know, this is my job. This is the one thing I'm going to really make. I had a bartender recently, nice guy. But there was a party I was at, and this bartender was so incredibly slow, and I feel like he could tell how frustrated everyone was getting with his lack of speed. And some people started making comments and everything. Not me, obviously. And um, I genuinely feel like he slowed down out of spite. And I see this all the time. I see this with Uber drivers. I see this with waiters. I see this with bartenders. I see this with cashiers at the grocery store. I see this with uh, all sorts of people. I've, I've seen this with radio producers, you know. Um, and... It's incredibly irritating when people are trying to be difficult. At a spot. I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. But I don't know about this story. I, I tend to really feel for Beckham on this. How do you view the situation? 800-848-9222. My old friend Stephen A. Smith um, was on ESPN talking about, we're not really old friends, but we're friendly, you know. And uh, he was on ESPN talking about this situation. Look, he was not arrested. He committed no crime. We get all of that. Um, On far too many occasions, I think that Odell Beckham Jr. has been painted in a far more negative light than he deserved. That needs to be said. Here's my problem with OBJ. Because you, OBJ, know more intimately what I just expressed about the situations that you've been in and how people have been so eager and so willing to paint you in a negative light. Why not exhaust yourself making sure that no one can do that to you now? Especially when you're on the free agent market You're going through a process where people are actually recruiting you and you're not just looking for a landing spot after sustaining your injury in the Super Bowl. You're not just looking for a landing spot. You're looking to get paid from wherever team you land on. Why put yourself in a position where you know these organizations are going to sit up there and say, let's probe this a bit further. I love Stephen A. Smith. I, I don't really watch him that often, but when I do, I'm never disappointed. I, I really like the guy. I got to tell you, he doesn't seem to know that much about sports, even though his whole career is talking about sports. And I'm not, I don't know that much about sports either. I'm not bashing him. But it's, it's just, I feel like he tries to make up for his lack of knowledge about sports with overemphasis and taking very strident and strong opinion. And again, whenever I've met the guy, he's a gem. So I'm not saying anything negative about him. But he, he, we used to work on the same floor. He used to be at ESPN, and I was at WABC, and we were all on the same floor. And I'd see him around, friendly as can be. And all of the other sports uh, talk show hosts at ESPN would all remark to me how they thought that um, – how they were amazed that he went on the air every day because he knew so little about sports. So then, and this goes to show you the brilliant radio minds that uh, worked in talk radio about uh, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. 
somebody has the incredibly brilliant idea to take this fellow, Stephen A. Smith, that doesn't know anything about sports and is hosting a sports show. Let's let's have him start doing some political talk shows because he doesn't know anything about politics either. And I have to say, I produced that show for a week. What an adventure that was to try to explain Stephen A. the news before his show so then he could go on and then explain. And it was he was great. I mean, he was great at like just reacting. It was wild. It was a wild situation. But he's a great guy. Then anyway, um, Stephen A, uh, he, there was one funny incident. I don't want to make this a whole Stephen A discussion, but uh, I have a friend, Kyle O'Brien. Now, Kyle O'Brien is white, um, and Stephen A. Smith is black. But Kyle O, everyone always told him that he looked like Stephen A. Smith. So one time Kyle was visiting me at the radio station, so I say, uh, let me get a picture of the two of you together. So I get a picture. And um, then when I, uh, maybe six, seven months later, I had Stephen A. record a message. It's on my YouTube. If you search my YouTube channel, which I think is Morano Vision, or it might just be Frank Morano. I don't remember if it's Morano Vision or Frank Morano. If you search my YouTube, you could see this, uh, this, yeah, yeah, Morano Vision on YouTube. This video that uh, Stephen A. was kind enough to record for Kyle uh, O'Brien telling him to stop impersonating him. It was pretty funny. Uh, some other good videos on there as well. You got hypnosis videos. You got that uh, video of uh, Bernard McGurk and, um, you know, uh, comparing his bald head to a melon. Got my Aunt Camille's egg salad video. A lot of good stuff. But curious where you come down on this Odell Beckham situation. 800-848-9222. Gentlemen I have interviewed many times. A gentleman who does not fly anymore, who really seems to dislike the airlines, is the former governor of Minnesota, Jesse Ventura, former pro wrestler as well, former romp and stompin' Navy SEAL frogman. He reacted on his podcast, which I subscribe to, to this controversy over Odell Beckham. Hi, Governor Jesse Ventura here on Die First Then Quit. And today I'm off on another rant, and it's over just a small little thing I heard on the news earlier that uh, the great football wide receiver Odell Beckham had a confrontation on American Airlines, apparently, and there were two sides of the story. One was Odell's side of the story, the other American Airlines' side of the story, and apparently Odell was removed from the plane and couldn't fly or whatever happened with it. I don't know who's at fault. I really don't. I don't know if Odell's telling the truth. I don't know if American Airlines is telling the truth. But they do have two contradicting stories that seem to be opposite or opposed to each other. And uh, Jesse Ventura then subsequently went on a whole rant against airline travel and against American Airlines. He didn't really get into it there. But curious where you fall on this. 800-848-9222. I tend to side with Odell Beckham. Again, it's very difficult to make judgments about events that we're not witnessing. But I could see this happening to me. I mean, it wouldn't happen to me because I buckle my seatbelt right away. But I do fall asleep right away. Maybe there's one instance where I do uh, forget to buckle my seatbelt. And there's a flight attendant that just wants to flex his or her muscle. Curious where you come down on this. 800-848-9222. Jerry is on Long Island. Hello, Jerry. Hey, good morning. morning. Um, I want to say that for Captain to turn the plane around and go back to the gate, we, uh, we, we, uh, you know, we always want to be on time. And 
it's the captain's decision alone to turn that plane around and go back to the gate, not the flight attendant. So the captain apparently went back there, listened to the situation, and thought it was severe enough to turn the plane around and go back to the gate. No captain wants to do that. Because it uh, messes with your on time, uh, you know. So, so. Jer- Jerry, you were an airline pilot. Yeah. So, uh, is it possible that the flight attendant gets into this this uh, situation with Odell Beckham and then reports to the pilot that there's a passenger refusing to uh, uh, put a seatbelt on, and then the pilot makes the decision to go back to the uh, go back to the gate without necessarily. Um, observing the situation himself firsthand. Very unlikely, because like I said, uh, you get graded on your on time. That's everything, huh. on time with the airlines. And the pilot's not going to want to turn around and go back to the gate. That's hours off off your schedule. And he he must have, he had to have gone back there and, and thought the situation was severe enough to turn the plane around. Interesting. Now, I'm not saying there's not captains out there that would, you know, like you said, flex their muscles. But uh, most captains have, you know, 10,000 hours plus of flying time. They've seen everything. Uh, they're not likely to turn the plane around. And it's not even the flight attendant's or the uh, flight uh, first officer's decision. It's only in the, the captain's decision. Huh. It, he's very... responsible for the safety of his airplane. And if he feels that uh, he's uh, being unruly to the to the point where it's going to uh, affect the flight of the plane, he's going to he, he, he's going to. But he turns it around, you know, he, he, he's going to turn the plane around. And, uh, you know, that's not the first thing he wants to do. Interesting. Oh, that makes sense. Hey, uh, so, Jerry, how come you're not uh, flying anymore? Did you retire? 61. And th- that's I'm the mandatory fl- I'm cutoff. Still I'm still flying, just not for the airlines. Gotcha. Give us, uh, give us a sample of some um, customary uh, airline captain lingo that you might say to the passengers. And do it, do it in that captain's voice where it sounds like you're getting very close to the microphone, but you're speaking very slowly. Give us a little sample, Jerry. This is your captain speaking. Uh, uh, it's been a while. Uh, if you, uh, it's been a while. It's been a while. I don't know. This is your captain speaking. Uh, just letting you know that... Uh, uh, we have a nice little tailwind here going, and we're going to get into uh, Miami about 35 minutes ahead of schedule. The weather right. in Miami is 72 and sunny, and uh, clear skies. Jerry, I'm convinced. I'm convinced. Jerry, thank you. You got it. Appreciate have a good night. 800 Where do you come down on this? Odell Beckham Gate or Airline Gate Gate, right? Because he w- they had to take the plane back to the gate. 800-848-9222. Cow- is in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. Hi, Carol. You know, I I have a funny feeling that Odell may have been under the influence of something, but nobody's mentioning that. I haven't heard it. You know, I flew on Virgin Atlantic on six different occasions. Never had a problem. They were so great. They treated me like gold. Um, you know, because I used to travel to England quite a bit. And I, I just, I, I did something that's not quite right with this situation, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, so what do you think happened? You think he was uh, high or drunk or something and then was acting like a, a diva or a jerk or something? Uh, possibly, yeah. Yeah, it could be. It could be, Carol. Thank you. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Hey, I also want to give a quick shout out to uh, the prime ministers of 
Finland and New Zealand. These are of two very attractive women, I must say. Um, and, and they are two of the youngest heads of government in the world. And look, there's not a lot of countries that are led by women, right? The United States has never had a government led by a woman. And they were together, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, and her Finnish counterpart, Sana Marin, who I think was the one involved in that whole dancing scandal. They have long faced questions about their age and their gender, and both of them were quick to shoot down a journalist who asked about the purpose of the first ever visit to New Zealand by a Finnish prime minister on Wednesday. So a lot of people, this is what the journalist said during this joint news conference that they that they had, a lot of people will be wondering, are you two meeting just because you're similar in age and, you know, got a lot of common stuff there? Now, I don't think he meant anything by it. It's a legitimate question. But Jacinda Ardern quickly cut him off. And she said, I wonder whether or not anyone ever asked Barack Obama and John Key if they met because they were of similar age. She said in reference to the um, former prime minister, former president of the United States and the prime minister of New Zealand. Good for her. She said, we, of course, have a higher proportion of men in politics. It's reality because two women meet. It's not simply because of their gender. She's exactly right. The there's a lot of ageism and sexism still among the press corps and world leaders, there is this tendency to view younger people as somehow less, less qualified, less intelligent, less wise, less experienced. And just as I'm against uh, discriminating against older folks because of their age, I'm against discriminating against younger folks. You know, people sometimes will ask me why I never say my age. The truth is I stopped about 18 years ago because I got tired of people making judgments about me based on my age. So I stopped. Said from now on, I'm not telling anybody. And um, I stick with that. Because there's no reason for people to, And that's one of the many, many things I admired about Hugh Hefner. When Hugh Hefner would host these movie nights and these scrapbook nights at the, at the uh, Playboy Mansion, he would have no tolerance because you'd have a bunch of old men there and a bunch of young women. And he would have no tolerance for age discrimination. And if people would ever say to one of these young women, I can't believe you never saw some older picture. Let's say it's Casablanca. I can't believe you never saw Casablanca. And this 23-year-old woman is sitting there saying, well, when would I have seen it? Uh, I was was not alive at the time that it came out. How could I have seen it? And he would say, the one thing I have no tolerance for is age discrimination because, and I feel the same way as Hef, people can't help it. You can't help how old you are, and nobody should judge anyone for how old they are or how young they are. And I give the uh, both the Finnish prime minister, who I've been somewhat critical of for her policies on NATO and Ukraine, and the New Zealand uh, prime minister, who I've also been somewhat critical of for her policies on COVID, I give them a lot of credit for the way they handled this here. 800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to Mike in Pennsylvania. Hello, Mike. How you doing, Frank? Good. A long time ago, you know, right? in my drinking days, you know, we were getting on a plane in Atlanta, and we were a little bit too intoxicated, and they wouldn't let us on the plane. They said, you guys, you know, been drinking too much. You're not not coming on the plane. you got to wait, you know, for another flight. So I said, well, you know, call me in the bar. I'll be waiting in the bar for the next flight. Well, so how drunk, you? how drunk were uh, you? How drunk were you? Yeah, that we were whacked. You were whacked we out of your mind. 
Yeah, we were out See, I always try to have a few drinks before I get on the plane yeah. so I don't have to wait for them to come around to bring drinks. And, I, I you know, I'm hoping that it'll put me to sleep uh, once I get on that uh, that plane. But that's you got to be yeah. careful with that also because you don't want to get dehydrated, which you have a tendency to do on the plane. But um, well, uh, so well, what did you do, Mike? How did that work out for you? Oh, well, we do. It took us two days to get home because we went to another <laughs> bar. We had, you know, it just it does in my younger days. I the love it, day. Mike. You know you're, what I mean? But the thing is this. When, when it's like you, I, I want to go to sleep when I get on a plane. I hate to fly. And it ain't so much the fact that, and it, it's not so much the fact that, you know, we're going to go down or something right. like that. It's the stupid people that are on there. I, yeah, I, I know. Say, Man, if this thing goes down and I got to worry about this lady here who's going to be a bitch now, forget about it when we, when we go down into the ocean or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I get it, Mike. You know, I get in. it. But I, Mike, thanks. There's a difference, though. You know, when no matter what time of the day, I'll you know we'll go somewhere. You always got to arrive at the airport at this insanely early hour. Now, I will be going to Mexico on Friday, as I mentioned. And um, there's a difference between having one, two, three drinks, especially at the airport these days. I don't know how it was when Mike was, um, you know, around town, but the drinks they give you are so tiny. And you could have three drinks and still not really get, be drunk. You know, you're a little, you're a little buzzed. You get on the plane, and then by the time you're into the flight, maybe it's 45 minutes, then maybe they'll give you another drink or two, and they give you those little mini bottles. So I find it to be a very challenging and a very expensive thing to get actually soused like Mike was uh, when he uh, took uh, on the uh, challenge of doing so. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Kankama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, I have two things. Uh, number one, I don't like Odell Beckham Jr. I I saw it with the airlines. I think he's a little bit of a whack job. Um, I also want to wish you best of luck uh, on your trip to Mexico, and I want to thank you again. Um, if it wasn't for you listening to you Monday through Fridays, and I know you're not paying me to say this, Frank, uh, you get me through the night, you get me through the holidays, and I've been listening to you over two years, Frank. Uh, your show is riveting. I learn a lot from your show. I can't listen to the weekends anymore, Frank. I just can't do it. And um, I just want to thank you and all the uh, people that I've become friends with through WABC. And with the holiday season coming up, I have a challenge for all the listeners out there is to do something nice, one nice thing for somebody else, whether it's buying them a cup of coffee or just spending time with somebody that's alone. I lost both my parents and, uh, it's a very depressing time of the year. And put your devices down, Frank. You know what I'm saying? And you know, just be there for people. And I want to thank you for being such a great radio host and a friend. Well, and, that's uh, very kind of you, Joe. Thank you. You're uh, making me blush. But uh, yeah, thank you for your patronage and always being so willing to contribute to this program. Oh, no problem, Frank. Safe trip to you and your kid and your wife. Thank you very yeah. much. Appreciate that. That's awfully nice. 800 Two two Patrick is in Huntington. Hello, Patrick. Good morning, Frank. Morning. I happened to see that same program with the uh, prices right. That was bizarre. We, you know? we, and yeah. Was, so, what'd you think of it? Well, it was interesting because it was uh, it was one for the little man. You know, it was nice to see, and he wasn't he wasn't cheating. He wasn't doing anything nefarious. He just happened to know it, and uh, 
Well, I, I thought it was fantastic. I it was wanna, amazing. He I, almost brought down the show. Yeah, well, I don't want to give too much away because if pe- I, I feel like it's one of those documentaries that the less people know about what happened, the better. Yeah, but yeah. Um, the main character in the documentary, Ted or Theodore, as he was known on the show, he it really wasn't one for the little man. He really didn't get credit um, when he helped one contestant win a whole bunch of prizes and a whole bunch of money, and another guy win all sorts of money um, another time. And, you know, he didn't really, I mean, he wasn't doing it for the credit, but he sort of is, I think, in some ways, kind of the unsung hero of the yeah, whole situation. Well, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's more accurate, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. no, I, I, but you would agree with me it's worth watching. It is worth watching. And here's the other thing with this, when you... What a nice gig these game show hosts oh, have. You look, oh. in, you look in the history Patrick, of... Uh, Patrick, you have of, no idea. Absolutely. That is one of my dream jobs. Now, I don't yeah. think they would ever you know, hire me for a show like uh, Jeopardy or Price is Right, but I think I would be great at it. It's one oh, of the reasons I oh, really enjoy... It's one you of the reasons I really enjoy doing the $1,000 Minute, but um, uh, it's, it's one of the best gigs in the world. My friend Joe Piscopo who's on the on uh, the radio, who does a, a no, great job. He told me once that he turned down The Price is Right, oh. and that's one of his great regrets in life, is turning down that opportunity to uh, do The Price is Right. Hey, look, those Gene Rayburn, Art oh. Fleming. Oh. Look at some of these names, uh, you know, Sajak, Trebek. Uh, it's, it just goes on and on. And the great you know, one, you, Bob Barker. You'd be, Bob, oh, of course, Bob. And you'd be a great... Uh, Bert Convy there, Frank. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. Thank you very much. 800-848-9222. We'll squeeze in one more, and then we'll uh, get, let you hear my game show, Chops. You know what it is? Is I have said so many controversial things and hosted so many controversial things. Ken Jennings made some ba- barely off-color jokes on some podcast three years ago. They were ready to run him out of town. Mayam Bialik said maybe people shouldn't be mandated to get vaccinated. They were ready to run her out of town. The uh, The guy that they picked to host Jeopardy before Ken Jennings, I think it was his name was Mike Richards or Michael Richards, not the guy from uh, Seinfeld, the, he made some uh, minorly off-color comments on social media or something, and they ran him out of town. So there's no way I could be hosting... Pat Buchanan and General Thomas McInerney and the guy that, uh, you know, Joy Damiani and uh, uh, the guy that uh, thinks Sandy Hook was staged and then they give me a game show. So it's the price you pay. All right. um, We're going to give you an opportunity to win some money, $1,000 to be precise, as part of the $1,000 Minute. And remember, I have spoken a lot about Mexico today. That's your clue. If you want to be, be given be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, you can try and dial right now. If you are the seventh caller, then uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 minutes. You can go ahead and call right now, 800-848-9222. We'll play the $1,000 Minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
It was today, 40 years ago, where Michael Jackson released Thriller. 40 years ago today. It would go on to be the best-selling record in the world and win eight Grammy Awards. And it's still a terrific, um, terrific song. Great music video, too. One of the greatest of all time with the great Vincent Price in the song and the uh, music video. Tremendous. And you know what happened today uh, in 2004? And this is why I didn't know this. I swear to you, I didn't know this. Who did I just mention? Okay. And again, this is a textbook synchronicity. And I refuse to believe that this is a coincidence. Today, in 2004, 18 years ago, Jeopardy! contestants' record-winning streak ends. Ken Jennings, after winning 74 straight games and more than $2.5 million, lost, finally. That was today. Now, what are the chances that I just mentioned Ken Jennings less than six minutes ago, and today happens to be the anniversary of his streak ending? I think that's wild. Are you watching, uh, I don't know if you're watching the guy that's on there now, Chris. He's tearing it up. He's, I think, already the fifth winningest uh, Jeopardy contestant in history in terms of money. And I think he's number seven or eight in terms of the longest winning streak. So uh, I can't wait to see him. I'd love to see some sort of uh, a tournament one day, a new ultimate tournament of champions with Amy Schneider, Ken Jennings, and this guy, Chris. That would be something. All right. Uh, without further ado, we are going to give somebody an opportunity to win some money. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Let us say hello to Bob in Yonkers. Hello, Bob. Hello, Frank. Bob, are you familiar with this portion of the program? Yes. Okay. Have you ever played before? Yes. Did you? Uh, you did not win, I guess. No. What, what, how far did you get the last time? I think four or five. What? Do you remember the question you got wrong? No, I don't. You don't? See, I was on Cash Cab one time. And I remember 15 years later, the question I still got wrong. But uh, so I guess maybe uh, maybe that's because I'm so game show focused. Uh, did we send you your consolation prize, your your cap yes, or something? Good. Yes. Good. You wear it proudly, I hope. Yes, sir. Wonderful. Okay. All right, Bob. Uh, since you know the rules, since you've played before, let's go ahead and get started, okay? Yes. What country is Mexico City located in? Mexico. What country is located directly to the south of the United States? Mexico. In what country can presidents serve only one six-year term? Um, United States. No, I'm sorry, Bob. In the United States, they let you serve two four-year terms. A little more if you're a vice president for the land for somebody. The correct answer was Mexico. Bob, I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, you talk to Kenneth, and maybe we'll give you a prize or something. I don't know if he – I think he's eligible for something new. Um, I, I've been hinting pretty consistently throughout the show that there were going to be a lot of Mexicos on this uh, quiz. But um, – 
I'm not judging. You know, again, it's an incentive to listen. You know, sometimes uh, a lot of people think the United States should have that one six-year term. So you don't have a president's second term, uh, a first term dominated by just seeking election. I'm not willing to go there yet, but, you know, some other people that are much smarter than me, Larry Sabato, for instance, they, uh, they've suggested that. So who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe it would work. That's, the, that's where we are, Mexico. Uh, that's where I will be on Friday. So I'll be here tomorrow, and uh, we've got some fun things planned for tomorrow. Still working out what those fun things are, kind of trying to finalize everything. A lot of stuff I didn't get to today. This was one of those days. You know what it was? I had a very busy day today, and there's a lot of stuff I didn't get, or yesterday, a lot of stuff that I didn't get done. New Year's Eve Eve, I am up the creek without a paddle because I have gotten nothing done for New Year's Eve Eve. I mean, I am making that up. I am waking up early to just work on New Year's Eve Eve stuff today uh, because it is getting late early, as Yogi would say. But... um. But what happened was I was so tired because I ended up – I had to get up early to record some stuff. And then I had a pre-tape scheduled. I am so done with these pre-tapes. I hate these pre-tapes. I had a pre-tape scheduled in the afternoon. And I hate to do pre-tapes. Look, if you're Ralph Nader or Pat Buchanan and you're in your mid to late 80s and you're a legend, I will get up to do a pre-tape with you. Or if you're someone that I absolutely would really love to, uh, like Dick Cavett, uh, and you're in your 80s and you don't want to stay up until 1 a.m., fine, okay. Uh, Steven Van Zant, I think I did a pre-tape with, right, because he's a legend. But for these regular people, I'm so over these pre-tapes. And I had this pre-tape scheduled. I begged the guy to do it live, like Bill O'Reilly, do it live. And he says, no, I can't do it. I can't stay up till 1. Okay, I don't want to say who this is because it's actually... A nice guy. But um, I can't stay up till 1. Fine, fine. All right. So I'll rearrange my schedule. And three things happen when I schedule a pre-tape in the afternoon. One is my schedule is just it's it's screwed up immediately. Because now instead of sleeping or caring for my son or, uh, or doing prep for the show, I'm now recording an interview. Two, it's an instant child care crisis. Because, you know, in the afternoon, I have to look after Carmine. Happy to do. Happy to do. Love it. It's the highlight of my day. And then three, it's an inconvenience for the people here at the radio station. Because I have to find someone at the radio station that can record this interview and take it in. And then wouldn't you know it? And then I have to prepare for the interview. I try to, you might not know it by the Foolish questions that I'm asking everybody, but I, I put some effort into preparing for these interviews. And then this guy that I had a pre-tape with, no shows us. We call him. We leave a message. I email here if you can't if you if you prefer to call us, call us at this number. Nothing. He gets back to me 45 minutes after the scheduled pre-tape and said, "I'm sorry, I totally forgot about this. Can we do it at 5:30?" No, I'm on to a whole nother chapter of my life. So anyway, I got even less sleep yesterday than I normally do, and I was responsible for uh, dinner yesterday, where I-, I made a salmon that I thought was very good, and uh, my wife didn't like it uh, that much. And it was really, it was nice salmon. I thought it was delicious. It was uh, wild salmon. Uh, very pretty expensive, and she she didn't think it was cooked enough. She thought it was a little too slimy. I thought it was great. In fact, there's still one leftover that if Carmine doesn't eat it today, I may have it for for breakfast when I wake up. But the point is, I was exhausted, 
So after Jeopardy last night, 7.30, I said, I've got to try and get an hour of sleep. And uh, I did. I got an hour of sleep and felt great. And then, you know, I did my 10 miles on the uh, on the stationary bike while I watched that uh, Price is Right documentary, The Perfect Bid. And I don't know if it was the fact that I got a much later nap than usual or uh, the fact that, you know, I, I exercised a bit later than usual. But I am ready to run through a wall. I, I have this is one of those days where I wish we had five or six hours of radio to do because there's a ton of subjects that I didn't get to today. And um, I, I wish uh, so we're going to table some of these for tomorrow. That's always the peril of having three guests. I did want to have all these guests on, but I, um, I there's a lot of stuff that I didn't get to. So we're going to do it tomorrow. We'll see how that goes. And uh, a whole bunch of other drama in various other aspects of life that I'll fill you in on tomorrow that we don't have time for. 800-848-9222. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a bit. But Tommy Two Times has been holding for 201 minutes. I'm not going to have the guy hold for 201 minutes and then only limit him to 15 seconds. Tommy Two Times, what's on your mind? What's on your mind? Well, good morning, Frank. I can't believe you actually got me on. That's awesome. Um the uh, I got a couple of comments for the Baltimore thing, but I, I what I've been talking about, what you've been talking about now about Mexico, and um, I don't know, just it seems oh, I've lost my mind. I've lost my mind here. Hold on. Um, Baltimore has like three hundred murders. You said right so far for the year. Bu- yes, eighth year yeah, in a row. Yeah, it's like the eighth year in a row. I mean, they're a violent city. I mean, they're, they. I looked up some information on it, and they said that they are. Uh, up forty percent, forty-seven percent world nationwide for murders in in um, in the United States over the last decade, but thirty percent in twenty twenty, and it, they're saying it's incredible. It's, because of COVID. it's incredible. Yeah, and I I I suspect that it's more um, to keep the COVID relevant, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people are pushing that narrative to keep the money train going. And I just what I feel. I mean, this is all my opinion. Well, what do you mean? So, well, um, why would there be that many murders to keep the money train going? I'm not sure I follow. No, no, I, 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 I didn't mean the murders, but I meant the COVID thing. Like, the, they, they're blaming COVID for the murders. Well, they're trying to. I mean, I was reading a couple articles about it, and they tried to blame COVID for it. And I'm like, uh, no, the stress uh, of see, everything and so forth. And I understand. I get it. You know, they they want to keep that narrative going. Um, I, I'm not that big on that narrative. But I do believe the bail reform is a leading cause of it, you know. And, and yes, stress during the COVID has contributed as but, well, but I'm look, sure. But look at Baltimore, yeah. right? So I can understand, and uh, Jim Quinn, was when he was on this show uh, last yeah, week, yeah. he made the, the case uh, pretty effectively, I thought, backed up by data, that bail reform was a, a big part of the reason for the uptick in crime in New York. But in Baltimore, it's not as if in 2014 they implemented bail reform and then all of a sudden it became the wild, wild west. So why is with with a population, uh, not to go back to where we were at the beginning, but with a population the size of Staten Island, why does Baltimore have the same number of murders this year that New York City does? That's interesting. I'm I'm going to look into that one. Uh, I do have... Uh, I think that the my opinion is the civility of moral and the lack of caring for your fellow humans is the reason why, uh, you know, like people are going crazy. You know, you got young kids not going. I mean, you, two, you just said uh, you have two uh, prime ministers that are young and attractive. And, right. and, and that's great. But the young generation today, I see 
something different in them. And it, there's like no motivation. There's no civility. There's no morality. And it's just like they don't care about a lot of things. And it's interesting to me because I have a son that's 23 years old and 22 years old. And, you know, and he's, he's not very out. He's, he loves them. He's an outgoing kid. He's, he's a great kid. And I just don't understand why people just don't want to be better to other people. I mean, my kid is, is a vegetarian. He loves animals and he likes people. You well, that's nice. I hope he likes people. Uh, to- Tommy, I'm going to have to end it there. I appreciate yeah, the call. Call again. I'm sorry I didn't get Thank to you earlier. Man. Appreciate Thank it. Uh, but I just have to read this Facebook comment. Normally, this is the kind of thing we'd read on Tuesdays, but this is just too good. Um, it, it, you could see this at uh, Facebook.com slash fan. Martin, who's clearly a very intelligent guy, he has a lengthy comment about Mark Shaw, and I'm not going to rebut everything he says. It begins with, Mark Shaw is a complete fraud. So there's very little drama and uncertainty about where the rest of his comment goes. But then he goes and says, Mr. Shaw's entire position belies his deep misunderstanding of the basic evidence in the JFK case. Your agreement with him gives your take on the case the same zany epistemology. One, brilliant use of the word epistemology. Great. I wish every listener criticizing me used epistemology. Two, when did I say I agreed with him? I don't believe I said that at all. Um, I, uh, I, I, I think last week I precisely said I did not think that JFK was necessarily killed by the mob. So hold your horses on agreement. The fundamental thing of this show is uh, we try to make sure all points of view are heard. And I think Mark Shaw is a brilliant storyteller. Clearly, the fact that he's a New York Times best-selling author, a lot of people agree with me. So I will hold have Mark Shaw on the show all the time. Doesn't mean I agree with him. And uh, I, I'd like to ask him a lot of questions. One of the questions I had for him, is, well, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to wait till the next time he's on. But um doesn't mean I agree with anything anybody says that's on this show. I try to do things that not a lot of people are doing. I try to do things, if possible, that no other radio show is doing. And uh, sometimes people like it, sometimes they won't. But um, just just because I host someone doesn't mean I agree with them at all. By the way, somebody on Twitter had a nice comment that said, uh, in words or substance, um, you know, um, basically about the general uh, that I had on earlier about uh, you, you know the reason this is such a good interview is because you can't tell whether or not you agree with him or not. Well, because you know I have four hours to give you my opinion on everything. If we have a guest on to give his opinion, you know that's their time. All right, fifteen seconds of fame in just a minute. We have two open lines that you can be heard for fifteen seconds. One eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. Hey, this is a real treat. In an hour in New York, uh, you are going to get to hear 
the uh, number one morning show in uh, in the city, and a lot of people would say uh, probably the best morning show in America these days. I might be one of them, with uh, with uh, apologies to the folks at uh, WCBM and elsewhere. And that is the uh, Sid Rosenberg show, uh, and uh, he's here. We figured we get him to say hello. Hello there, Sid. Well, good morning to you, Frank. I was listening to you on the way in, as I do every morning. The Odell Beckham Jr. stuff was very interesting. What's your take on that? You I, think- I, I can't stand OBJ, so I just don't <laughs> care if his flight was miserable, if it wasn't miserable, if he was right or wrong. As a diehard New York Giant fan, in fact, I'm going Sunday. I'm taking my beautiful wife, Danielle, and my son, Gabriel, to watch the Giants play the Washington Commanders. I don't want OBJ anywhere near New Jersey, so I just don't <laughs> care about the story. I just don't. But I know what, you, I know what you're saying. Yeah. One thing you did say, which was really smart, was you put somebody in a position of power or authority, and they love to wield it. Always. I've done it with program directors my whole career. Yeah. Don't be uh, program directors who think they know more about you. If they knew more about you, they'd be hosting the radio you, you show. Know what? I got an email yesterday. No no disrespect to the program director, but I get an email yesterday. I do this podcast, which is pretty popular. People like it, the Racket Report. Can, oh, you, make, right. can you make it Luigi shorter? Luigi the Zip. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then the last Sunday in the Post, a big article about Luigi the Zip. I get an, can, this, and now this is a deep dive conversation with mobsters, with lawyers, with journalists. It's hour great. and a half sometimes. That two hours. It's you great. can't hear this content anywhere. You know what I get this email yesterday? Can you shorten it? Yeah. Can you make it 45 minutes? Well, no. I, I, I know no, there, I can't. There's a, uh, and it's a great podcast, and you do a terrific job, and I love that stuff. I can't get enough of the mob stuff, but I know there's a concerted effort by everybody here. They like these new mini podcasts now. They're about 10 minutes in length. So the feeling is when you're a busy person, right. you don't have an hour to do anything throughout the day. Make stuff as short as possible. And I think a lot of that's times that Rogan does work. That's what Joe Rogan does, right? Yes. No, it's does. not. No, he does five hours. <laughs> yes. Right. But, that's and what I Jocko, do four hours. Right. Jocko Willink does that, right? <laughs> or Conan O'Brien. They're the most popular podcast in America. They're not 10 minutes. <laughs> So, it's, it's true. Hey, um, real quick, what's coming up on the uh, Sid Show today? We got a, a very busy show today. I actually was the one who told Lee Zeldin yesterday that Alvin Bragg referred to him as a racist. Racist rhetoric. He didn't even know it. So he's going to come on and respond to oh. Alvin Bragg at 925. We've got uh, Peter King coming up at 840. Always great on a Wednesday. My mother, the oh, whole Trump thing. She's popular. Well, she is very popular. But Naomi. also, everybody's kind of jumping off this Trump bandwagon except for some of these morons on social media and these listeners here. So if my mother jumps off, then you know he screwed up in a big way. My bet is she's not jumping off. All right, we'll be listening at 6. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, um, we're not going to have time for 15 seconds of fame. So uh, those of you, especially the guy that calls in every day and says Sid's a moron, call back tomorrow. Uh, we're going to give everybody extra time tomorrow. We'll, we'll go rather than five minutes to the end of the show. Maybe we'll give you... Uh, you know, six minutes to the end of the show. We'll have plenty of time tomorrow. Hey, I'll be back tomorrow. We may or may not do Ask Frank Anything, depending on the email feedback. Frank Moreno, good day. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.